0: The best rugby insight and analysis. OTB Sports Rugby.
1: They don't look like the All Blacks. They're not playing like the All Blacks. They're barely clinging on. They never really look like they would win Test two or three.
2: Subscribe to the Rugby Stream on the OTB Sports app now. OTB
1: AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow. With the new Gillette
3: Labs Razor. With exfoliating bar. Right, you're very welcome along. It's Monday morning. It's Jerome with you all the way through until 10 this morning. Normally we have a little bit of blah, 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 blah. Instead of that, we're just going to get straight into this week's edition of the Gillette Performance Rankings because it's a week to talk about some interesting things, bad and good. You're never going to guess what's in the green, folks. Let's get going. You know, that wasn't an All-Ireland winning
4: performance. Probably should have won the game based on the second half performance. Is it a step too hard to say it was the performance so far of the World Cup? Maybe not. OTBAS Performance Rankings with Gillette. I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head. That performances have just lacked that intensity.
0: Well, Owen, you're looking very green. Feeling very green. Uh, the kind of like the, the, the shade of envy kind of washing over me and uh, of fury that was felt at Stamford Bridge yesterday is the theme. Uh, this morning we're going to start in the green because uh, what? we never do that. We never do that. What we'll, uh, a turn up for the books! Because I'm sick of talking about Manchester United. Uh, we'll uh, get to them at the end. Manager beef is uh, in the green this morning. If you like your managers to to get angry with one another, then yesterday was uh, a hell of a day for you. And uh, just beautiful scenes really at the full time whistle. Uh, a million different meme formats came through uh, in those few seconds between. Thomas Tuchel and Antonio Conte, and uh, it exploded after what was uh, a, a number of brilliant incidents throughout the game but between the two managers as well. Um, like it's very, very hard to kind of think of of anything uh, negative to say about two middle aged men getting angry with one another.
3: Uh, is it? I mean, you know, these these they lost control. Who do they think? What about the children? It's terrible. Oh, what was us? We have to watch this. And then, they, I mean, they abuse the referee afterwards. Uh, I think Tuchel probably goes too far with the referee afterwards. Like, it's difficult to referee these Premier League games. It turns out, and sometimes the refereeing isn't very good. But how are you going to get good people to come and take those jobs if you constantly get abused?
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um I, I guess so, but like that's just pre- Premier League managers, isn't it? Like the re- referees get this all the time. It's it's like it's just ridiculous. The um, I guess I, I don't know the, the petition afterwards. The the second such petition around Anthony Taylor from Chelsea fans got uh, a lot of signatures. Um, Eighty thousand. Uh, yeah, there was definitely one before that like got 80,000 This one might be on a similar level as, oh, well, the as one Oh, the new one, sorry yeah. um, I'm not, I'm not That sure. was the
3: last, last season's one I yeah. mean, look uh, It's not the referee's fault, right? Uh, that the two lads end up having the fight Tuchel's going to say that it was But he was spoiling for it. That's what he wanted Tuchel wanted it Do you not think? Oh, was, Tuchel was started, started it. it, yeah, yeah.
0: Tuchel uh, hung on to the hand Because uh, Antonio Conte didn't look him in the eye in I think he sessions. started the first one too
3: like yeah. Conte, Conte goes to where he's allowed to go for the celebration. Mm. Yeah, and then Tuchel kind of runs over to him and butts him. You're Like, yeah. you, what? I mean, oh, so it wasn't it wasn't me, it was you. It definitely was you. Yeah. Tuchel also a much taller man than you might have thought from just looking at him on the sideline. When you see him in context, obviously uh, Antonio Conte is quite small. Yeah. Conte it, wins the fight, obviously. Does he? Just because yeah. he's a, he's a street fighter? Yeah. Yeah. You know, sometimes. You gotta sometimes think this through.
0: Like, he's taller than uh, Conte? I'm not sure. he's much heavier? Than I wouldn't Conte.
3: say. I wouldn't. I would say just by virtue of the like extra bonage, he's mm-hmm. um, there's a, there's a couple of kilos in that. No. Yeah, like. Um, He's all, yeah like the street fighter thing is
0: is interesting like I think Antonio Conte probably revels in this like it definitely felt that Tuchel loved this and uh, he was giving more away to Jeff Shrees afterwards and like he he was a big fan of of everything that happens and and, and that's great but Conte did as well He didn't give as much away in the aftermath but he he went on to Instagram and on his uh, Instagram story posted a screenshot of Thomas Tuchel running past him as uh, he thought Chelsea just scored the winner in the 84th minute or whatever it was and he said look yeah I didn't see you making you trip over would have been well-deserved. So I didn't realise that uh, he had his hand in his head just as Thomas Tuchel was speeding right past him. uh, uh, He would have kicked out, like? uh, Yeah, like, obviously. That would have been amazing. Laughing uh, emojis, but, like, uh, that's what it is. Like, I mean, any sort of outrage about the refereeing or the reaction to the refereeing or the uh, display by two men uh, who should know better, probably just a little bit pointless. It was just a collection of very, very funny moments. And um, a collection of very interesting characters. Like, I, didn't see, I didn't see Anthony Barry there yesterday. Uh, like, did, did you spot him? Like, I was keeping an eye out for him as I was trying in to... The, in the fight. In the, like just all, the, all these characters that we don't really... We aren't overly familiar with because um, just, we just aren't. We know their names. We aren't necessarily sure what their faces. Like, I, know, I know this is not the makeup of their backroom teams, but it kind of felt like everybody that was protecting Thomas Tuchel looked very German all of a sudden, and everybody who was protecting Antonio Conte looked very Italian all of a sudden. And it was like these, uh, these, these clashes of two very passionate nations going toe-to-toe, even though that wasn't the truth at all. And the big, burly Tottenham or Chelsea security guard, the tattooed, bearded man who uh, just kind of stood back just a little bit before they uh, went head-to-head and then got in and stopped it, which is, uh, if you're into the entertainment business and also being a security man, that's how you do your job very well.
3: Shano Insano 210 on our YouTube comments says, GA are in the red for having soccer put their handshake. Confrontations to shame. I mean, we thought we'd seen the best handshake confrontation in world sport on our own shores. But it turns out we haven't. We were in the haveny place, really.
0: Well, ours was a particularly Irish one, especially the second one, where they both knew that the handshake thing was going to be a thing. And like to, again, middle-aged men, but this time uh, Irish men of a certain age, maybe very young ages, of course. Yeah. Um, they, uh, they decided, you know, no, we're not doing that for the time being. We're not, I'm, not, I'm not being the man to shake the hand first. Whereas uh this was kind of more of a, a continental approach to a handshake beef. It was looking me in the eye looking me in the eye like a like a real
3: man. Uh Tuchel and Conte was everything that Cody and Sheffin should have been, but wasn't, as Henry bowed down to the more dominant male, says John O'Leary. <laughs> I don't I don't think that's uh, accurate, John. I think maybe uh Henry decided not to like turn it into what Thomas Tuchel decided to turn it into. And uh, look. Maybe if it had been somebody, you know, maybe if it was somebody else. Like, would, would two other GA managers have been capable of having something like this who weren't former teammates or colleagues or, you know, county men? Could you see this happening between, say, random manager and another county's random manager? Like, could, could Liam Cahill and Davy have something like this next season? Is that possible? I don't know. Well, hope like I mean, if there were, if we would
0: certainly watch. If there was any kindness in their soul, they would give us that level of theater. You think we deserve it? Yeah, like I think that they need to go out of their way, and the, this, we need to enter kind of a new WWE-esque phase of of managers fighting. Like it, it is, I hadn't really bought into the whole Tottenham versus Chelsea bad blood thing. I thought that the Battle of the Bridge was just one of those things. Like it was a long. This is six years ago, and people are like Battle of the Bridge Point Part Two, as if like we'd been like eagerly sitting outside theaters waiting for this thing to arrive like I mean, there 's been a lot of fixtures played since then that haven 't had this level of of fire between the two teams that i I, I wasn 't quite uh, expecting it. like I, I think i'd kind of completely forgotten about some of the the fallout from the Battle of the Bridge one for, from two thousand and sixteen like i 'd completely forgotten that Mark Clattenburg went on a podcast a short time after. And essentially said that he was, he was more than happy to, to let the game explode, that he, he allowed them to, to self-destruct. So all the media in the world went, Tottenham lost the title for themselves rather than Mark Lattenberg lost the title. I think he handed out like nine uh, yellow cards on the night it to, 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 was, was to, to Chelsea players and wouldn't send off Tottenham players. Or something along those lines. And there was all these kind of like ridiculous um, storylines that came out from that. This is probably going to be something similar, and the uh, the Anthony Taylor fallout is is going to be one of the storylines. Mike Dean being VAR, I think, is hilarious as well. That I suppose that Mike Dean got his ironic farewell at the end of last season, and his tentacles are still very much involved in yeah. the biggest game of the weekend.
3: <laughs> and and do you have any sympathy with what Tuchel was saying afterwards? A, a little bit. Like I
0: thought it was a foul on Kai Havertz like uh, uh, the the they're, hair pulling they're not th-
3: being given those fouls aren't being given yeah anymore. they're not like, like I, I, I you know last season it was this season it isn't hair hair pulling
0: as well as uh, like a, i mean you're an, you're not a big fan of the technically arguments like technically you couldn't uh, have given if it wasn't a red card you couldn't or a penalty then you can't really overturn the whole thing and and um give that as a as a, as a free to the defending team for example that's not how VAR works so okay, well then there you go um, That's relatively tr- relatively straightforward, isn't it? Yeah, like I'm not. I, I, don't, I don't think that there's, there's much in the the referees thing. To
3: uh, be honest, Jared says I, I I love seeing the passion and aggression of the managers. As a Man United fan, I wish Manchester United had a manager like that. Exactly what the group needs. Maybe Eric Ten Hag is like that. It's just like, what are you going to be? What do you? Uh, who, who do you shoot? Everybody. That's the problem. Uh, Tuchel has a foot more reach, says Barry Lyons. Stop talking nonsense. That's obviously aimed at you. I mean, I think. Sure. The, the foot more reach would be important if they were like following the Marcus of Queensbury rules, but what would be happening is that it would be a street fight where like Antonio Conte comes painted for war and wearing nothing, and Tuchel's like, well, uh, well, you know, what's going on here? I don't, yeah. I don't know how to fight this enemy. I do like, think I do think that you're uh, riding Thomas Tuchel off in a street fight too soon. I think that there's like a. There's a a craftiness there that maybe we were unaware of. I actually think this is the emergence of Thomas Tuchel as like one of the leaders of the Premier League. Although, because he arrived and won the Champions League straight away and then carefully, okay, managed the transition from the old owner to the new owner. But now he's like, you're not getting rid of him, are you? Chelsea fans are going to love him.
1: Uh, yeah
0: that, that, that helps just on, on the reach point i mean like i mean nikolai will have had a longer reach than david hay uh, way back when uh, so uh, markers of queensbury
3: rules as i yeah, said yes um the
0: uh, tukel like yes was a really bad result for chelsea and thomas Tuchel probably would have been lauded if they would got the job done in the end but they really should have got the job done in the end like Tottenham were very poor yesterday and chelsea were at home and they had a real chance to kind of batten down one of their rivals with an early statement win yesterday, because we, kind of like we made this point with Mark Lawrence on, on Friday morning that Spurs were the standout team from week one, but there was just a sense that this is Chelsea and they've been a little bit undervalued maybe in the build up to the season because they weren't as seemingly new and shiny as, as Conte basically and, and some of the players that he brought in in, in, in midway through last season. So Chelsea are still very good and they've recruited well. I thought Cucurello was very good yesterday. Obviously Koulibaly has been brilliant the first two games and, um, and Raheem Sterling seems to be a better attacker for that uh, team than Romney Lukaku was. So they've improved since last season and the Chelsea fans seem to be not only in love with Thomas Tuchel but in love with their new custodian. And uh, there was a Todd Bowley Tifo unfurled before the game yeah. yesterday. Which it is, seemed
3: like it might have been printed by Todd Bowley himself. Yeah, oh, it just felt—it felt a little bit like, oh, the the club officials are handing over the TVO to the fans. <laughs> Here, look, Todd, Todd and Co. Uh, well, maybe I like, uh, do them all a disservice, and it was a completely spontaneous outpouring of joy from, you know, a, a bunch of fans for their billionaire owner, because you know they, they feel like, oh, at least we're not the Glazers or it's not a Bramovich anymore. Who we also would have happily said we love, even though yeah. you know there were some troubling issues in the background
0: do Chelsea fans love billionaires more than every other club
3: well they've certainly had a good impact on uh, the amount of trophies they've won that's how I guess that's how those sports fans are dealing with that uh, I, to, to the point though I think that this is in, like Tuchel far more character that we've seen from Tuchel in that 40 minutes 45 minutes yesterday than we've seen ever
0: uh, I'm not sure about that like yes there was a, there was a lot of fire and passion but like and Yes, it was so entertaining. Like at, the, at the same time, him running down the touchline, that doesn't happen for me unless it's a reaction to Conte in the first instance. So it feels like a little bit of a forced moment. And again, I don't, I don't want to take away from what that led to, because it was brilliant. When he goes running down the touchline, I'm like, fantastic, brilliant. And I wanted to see the replay. I wanted to see Conte's reaction. And, and it all adds to the theatre of it. Whether or not that kind of like creates like um, a better impression of Tuchel... I'm not necessarily sure. Like they say, it was still a bad result. Like the football manager uh, got a bad result uh, yesterday.
3: Did he? Like he you're gonna, he you're absolutely you're not, you're got not, a bad you're result. You're not going to win every game. That spurs. But you have a, to win that game. You don't. Yes, you do. Yeah, actually do 100% don't. you do. Over the course of the season, you just need to not drop points against your main rivals and then win all the other games. That's how you win the league. Except they're not going to win the league. Oh, no, you have to win the talk, games
0: that you're dominant in. Well, and we're they gonna, were
3: utterly dominant. We're going to talk about the, the league title race in a few moments' time. And this is all a little bit moot. But if, if Man City didn't exist... Drawing two all, like, an okay, so it's a, it's a kick in the nuts where they score in the 97th minute. That's fine. But they played really well. Like, the most important thing here is that Chelsea are going to be excellent this season. And they're they still, it looks like they're still going to sign more players. Chelsea are going to be really good. I think that was the emergence of Tuchel as somebody going and, and, winning people over and not just being this cold, austere, f- vaguely impenetrable character who we didn't really know that much about his pers- persona or personality. He showed far more personality yesterday, I think. And whether or not it was inspired by Conte, great. This, that means this rivalry is going to be excellent.
0: Like, yeah, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that it's not going to be a great rivalry. I'm just saying yesterday was a bad result for Thomas Tuchel.
3: Okay, I think in the long run, it's a massive victory for Tuchel because he is 100% wedded to that fan base and that owner is looking at the fan base being off, fuego going, what? We just, I thought, I thought this was, how does this work? What's going on here? Oh, it's, he's my guy, but we got a
0: tie. What? Right, we, do we need to move on? Uh, we can move on. Like the, the other, Just the only last thing from yesterday is uh, I hope that there's like some um, in-the-tunnel footage released because there was apparently an altercation between Conte and Mateo Kovacic as well. Uh, Kovacic was out through injury yesterday, but Conte barged into Kovacic uh, which led to him. What was Philip saying?
3: What, what was what was he saying? Cause that it's like oh, we know each other? Yeah, we do. Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, I know what you're saying too. What were they saying? I don't know.
0: Yeah, the, like I mean, there's um, there's a potential documentary in, in yesterday, so um, hopefully they'll be able to uncover a few more details as time goes by. So that's in the green. The managers, you love to see it. Like uh, that's the thing. We're we're a mature bunch of uh, sports people at this point. Sports watchers, we can say that we uh, enjoy. Um, the, the beef between managers rather than and I think Sky Sports got particular joy out of saying that yesterday as well I think that was kind of being like you know look how emotionally intelligent we are that's what Sky was saying we can enjoy this thing and I think that was like a pointed statement towards the now very famous hand-wringing that BT Sport broadcaster in the Atletico Madrid versus Manchester City uh, last year yeah, Sky I Sports mean, yesterday were like oh I, we're, I, we're I, mature I think they you have a the point
3: I've got to say right so watching the post-match interviews from after Lampard and Gerrard on Saturday they were kind of boring in a minute and a half. Like, Jeff Shreves is four and a half minutes for both his manager ones. And he's straight in going, what happened with the red cards? Yeah. Do you know, like, for all the shit that Jeff, Reeve, Jeff Shreves gets, I think he's actually pretty good at that stuff because it's difficult. And you compare and contrast that with, like, Stephen Gerrard wasn't asked about Tyrone Mings after the game. Mm, that seems a, a, what? A, a big one to make. Ask to about tell. Mings. Oh, thanks very much. Like, what? He's, he's got, you've, got, you've got another three questions here, buddy. You've got it like another three minutes if you want it. Jared's like actually delighted with himself because he's, he's going to lick himself. He's so happy. And they didn't ask him about Mings. Jeff Shrees would have asked about Jerome Mings.
0: It was interesting at the end of the Trees interview with Conte. He, he said one last question. And then after that, he said one last question because I've been asked to ask you about the refereeing incidents. And I think, I don't know, just personal opinion, the refereeing conversation was a little bit fatiguing yesterday because I didn't really care all that much. Like even like, yeah, I didn't think, I thought it, it should have been a foul on Havertz, etc. But like, I mean, who really cares? And uh, I know Conte, to be fair, didn't want to get into the brawl. Brawl is too strong a word. Didn't want to get into the altercation. And maybe maybe they had to ask some, some other sort of questions. But it's interesting that it's not just him who's asking the questions. That somebody in his ear is like asking him uh, to ask questions as as things happen. The other thing in their green this morning is uh, Paul and Finton European champions. Once again, a good weekend for Irish rowing in general you got the world Champions come, championships coming up so maybe this is a little bit of a, an indicator towards form but a, a medal was all important at the weekend we don't know and I think Paula Donovan himself doesn't know whether or not he's going to row at the world championships next month he's uh, studying medicine at the moment and, and says he needs to, to study um, but just uh, again just a reminder of why Paula Donovan is one of Ireland's greatest ever sports people and the story is still very much uh, in the middle right now. At the age of 28, there's, there's a lot of rowing to be done and obviously with a, a three-year turnaround between Olympic Games, I'm sure that's probably an extra incentive for, for a lot of people. Like, it's Hall at the moment, a silver medal and a gold medal at the Olympic Games, four gold medals at the World Championships, two silvers, three goals at the European Championships. It's just an extraordinary level of normal brilliance from, from one of our... Um, from one of our athletes, and and, and O'Donovan's just been incredible. Obviously, Fintan McCarthy has been a, a revelation as well ever since he's got into the boat with them. Um, on Saturday then as well, Ireland had uh, a silver medal in the women's four, so this is also at the same European Championships in Munich, obviously. So you had Emer Lam, Afri Tara Handel, and Natalie Long. They came second to uh, Great Britain in that particular race. So Lam and Kyo were also in the boat that won bronze in Tokyo last summer, so they're uh, also on a trajectory of... Uh, winning major medals on a regular
3: basis it's not bad is it that's very impressive I mean we're doing something very right when it comes to the rowers and it's hard to find new ways to talk about the level of brilliance they're exhibiting it'd be great if they could go back to the world championships Um, you know I'm I'm sure whatever college he's in will be like that's okay you take your time we know you're going to get there eventually. looks like you're a fairly high achiever. Don't worry about it. You can take as long as you need to get qualified. It's fine. Yeah, he
0: said in uh, his interview afterwards, he's like, uh, I'm not sure if people notice, but I'm a little bit stupid, so I need all the time to study. <laughs> I don't it's think like, he is. I don't think so whatsoever. I think that that's, um, yeah. I, I often feel sorry for Fintan McCarthy in those interviews as well because he's like, uh, Paul Dunham, this is the guy the Graham Norton show, a, a world-class entertainer. And uh, I'm sure... Finsen's a very funny guy as well, but uh, you're coming up against a world-class entertainer, it's like...
3: Well, you're, you're evolving alongside. Yes, he's, he's putting yes. his, his, his arm around him and saying, "You come on, you come with me. Yeah. Like, We're going to do this together, buddy. To be fair, he was very...
0: Uh, he, at least I don't know what he was saying. He was saying that Finton kind of like dragged him through on, uh, on Saturday, and, and McCarthy did look spent at the end. He was kind of... Uh, his head down between his legs almost at, at the... the, the um at the finish line and uh, yeah O'Donoghue was just saying that he, he really kind of got him through that race and he'd obviously been in maybe a little bit better form going into the race
3: yeah you, you don't want to let Paul Dunlophe down do you it's like, well that's uh, it's a very good point inspiring it's like, yeah. yeah now you, the deaths there afterwards if you hadn't pulled your weight would be um, pretty serious yeah because uh, the rowers are hard we're going to talk to Niall O'Toole tomorrow he's obviously over in Munich and um, we'll get his take on it he's always excellent at finding some context of uh, putting this uh in in kind of sporting order for us and again it, the, the difficulty is that when you said oh ireland's the greatest sports person that even the reports are talking about you know and they're listing off like Sonia sullivan roy Keane, harrington roy McElroy, and it's like well they're right there you know it's just uh once you start having those conversations, it's like well i'm i'm finding fault here and so we're not going to do that this morning maybe later in the week
0: yeah exactly give us another 24 hours um, in the amber, we go to amber very quickly, uh, we make time for Manchester United there, so uh, in the amber is uh, Ian Foster, and uh, the All Blacks got their win on Saturday, they ended a three game losing streak and uh, beat South Africa away, I think a lot of people didn't expect this, uh, I think that maybe people saw a, a golf the previous Saturday, so t- to win 35-23, uh, you would have thought it was a, a bit of a reprieve for Ian Foster, but it doesn't seem like it is at all, He comes out after the game and he says the stress that comes with the job uh, is is pretty run-of-the-mill. But the reaction to the previous week was pretty vicious. He says there's been a a lot of onslaught, particularly from our New Zealand media. Uh, That that was his reaction after the game. But then there was a press call later in the day where New Zealand rugby boss Mark Robinson uh, goes out. And at least if you're going to do a press call, be definitive on what you're saying. But it seems that the outcome from this press call was to create more noise around the future of of Ian Foster and more uncertainty around the future of Ian Foster. Um, I've seen one of the the journalists describe it as as bizarre. He says there will be a board meeting at some stage. The board is responsible for the appointment of a coach. That's to be determined in terms of timing. There's been no issues with regards to my relationship with Ian Foster. He's He's had the support of New Zealand rugby and that remains. We just need to work through this period to understand where the next steps are with this management team.
3: Yeah, so the rumour was that he'd been told, you're going to have to resign if you lose this game, which, you know, you can't actually force somebody to resign. But the suspicion was that they had come up with some kind of, we don't sack our coaches, and so this would not be a sacking. But, you know, we're parting ways mutually, except it's not really mutual. You're going to have to go here, Fozzie. And then the team come out and are brilliant. And it's like, well, what are you going to do now? Who's Who's... You're going to force me to resign now? Well, let's just see. And so the press conference seems really bizarre. It's like, oh, I know. I'll put the fire out here. And it's like, with my flamethrower. Oh, shit, you're on fire. Mm. Oh, you're on fire too. Oh, can we put it out? Spray a bit more fire. So I don't know. I mean, I think you'd have to say beating South Africa in South Africa is like about as difficult a thing as you can do at the moment. And they did it really well, you know? So like, does he not, does he not automatically get another chance?
0: Like it, it was a that was a serious misstep to tell somebody the outcome or, or what you want them to do if something happens. Like it just show, show, first of all, a complete lack of belief that they would get the job done. I suspect because you clearly didn't envisage a scenario where he wouldn't win. Otherwise, you wouldn't be having that conversation with the head coach of your team. But regardless of that, it's just a very silly thing to do. Like you, you gotta look, you gotta, gotta act with a little degree of certainty if you're hoping that your head coach is going to resign to make you look good. Because that's, I think, what New Zealand rugby are hoping Ian Foster does here, that if they lose badly, whatever, at home, or if they lose one of the tests to Argentina, then they're back in that situation again where Ian Foster's head is on the chopping block. They need Ian Foster to do them a favour by resigning,
3: because they're not going to sack him, because that's not what the New Zealand way is. Well, it also, it's not the easy the way, but we've we've talked about this with Justin Marshall at various stages, and he was making the point that, like, you're going to have a whole new backroom team coming yeah. in and you're going to have to pay off the backroom team, some of whom you've just hired. So that's their full contract that you're going to... Maybe, maybe they're still within their period of time where you can get rid of them on probation, but I suspect not. I suspect that they're, like, uh, certainly... There's some kind of bit there in their contract where they're like, yeah, you're going to have to pay me the full deal if we get sacked here, because, like, otherwise, why would I do it? Um, so maybe they don't have the money to do it. And, like... Maybe maybe coaches learn from periods of adversity. That's possible, right? Mm.
0: And also when it comes to the people that they've just hired, I think two games is desperately unfair to make a judgment on. And Foster was praising Jason Ryan and the work that he's done with the, the forwards pack after Saturday. So his work is starting to, to show itself after two games and all of a sudden if you're getting rid of the, the team en masse and that doesn't work. Now, I know that he's got a Crusaders link himself, so, so maybe uh, like the, when Robertson comes in, if he's going to be the successor, then maybe all the, the people that he's worked with in the past end up, uh, end up staying anyway. But uh, it, it feels that they've, they've kind of the, the mess is there because the team isn't great at the moment, but the mess has been inflamed hugely by the, 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 the way that they've handled it
3: on, on a diplomatic level. We did ask the question if Razzie might this week be playing chess while everybody else is playing checkers by, you know, trying out some new things, having a little bit of a vanilla approach to the attack and the defence and just saying, let's go and see how certain players play, because they they dropped the man of the match from the previous week, dropped you know, he ends up coming on pretty early right, Um, Pascal Jacobs says, winning wasn't the be-all and end-all for Razzie, he experimented, how else do you explain Malcolm Marks on the bench and the lack of poaching attempts that destroyed the All Blacks last week and Barbalatza83 says, The New Zealand resurgence isn't anywhere near as emphatic as the media are spinning. It was a very tight affair. Three tries not given to the box. Wasn't that the same as Ireland's first test in New Zealand? Uh, well, I, look.
0: Are we, are we, it, what um, media are spinning that it's an, an emphatic resurgence? Like I don't think anybody is. I don't is. think anybody is. Like, it's um, a stay of execution is
3: literally the tone that I've seen everywhere, but maybe I've missed it. Um. But maybe Razzie didn't care. And that transmitted to the players and it's actually like what South Africa have done is massively expand the pool of players who they think can compete against the best teams in pressure moments you know yeah i still think south africa are the favorites of the world cup france and south africa are 50-50 for me the, the home advantage thing makes
0: it probably leans it in in, in france's um favor just just a little bit home advantage home pressure home pressure as well france it seems they've got to grips with that pressure on a certain level, before now anyway, where the, the Six Nations victory was obviously, a, a, it felt like a big enough staging point early in the year, and, uh, and, and that should probably translate into next year. But it, it is hard to make a case that they're not the two top teams in the world at the moment, even though, of course, you know, the world rankings wouldn't tell you that. No, we're, we're the best. Mm. Well, At what point do we start uh, you know, th- talking ourselves up at, at this point? Like, we've,
3: I think we've after the semi-final victory...
0: I, that, I think that's probably a good, good enough time. Yeah, yeah. We, we might, might uh, we might edge towards that, uh, suggesting that the could be in a good place at that point. So,
3: yeah. Uh, you know, will we will we keep it kicked <coughs> out to them at all? I don't know. Mm.
0: It'll be out in South Africa in that final. That's so. Wasn't that wasn't what we agreed on last week.
3: Yeah. So yeah, chalk that down. It's uh, seven fifty-seven. You got to give the people what they demand, though. And people on our YouTube comments are like, "What? Where's the, I've I've come for the Man letter in red? You've, this is all a bit tantra. What's going on? Oh
0: yeah, we're uh, finishing on, on the red this week. Premier League title race. In red, I'm not sure about this to be honest. Uh, Liverpool could win tonight, and the title race is fine. Man City looked good. Man City looked good in a lot of games last season as well, uh, at home and uh, looked mortal in other games. And uh, like we'll, we'll see, let's let's right off the Premier League title race in a few months' time. Uh, Manchester United, then. Um, like this is this is like when we question every Monday morning, is this a new low for Manchester United? It is a genuine question because there have been so many different low points, and you're not quite sure which is the lowest of the low. But there's no doubt that this is the low point, isn't it? No.
3: Nope. This No? Nope. 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 They could finish 12th. No, but I mean, two date. I mean, to date. Uh, oh, to, to date, it is, I suspect, because there is no hope. Abandon hope all ye who enter here. There is no hope at the moment. Like, it's really interesting the focus on the money in the aftermath of the performance like that. Like, um, that it's the Glazers' fault. And I, I appreciate that there's a pie chart of blame to go around here. But, like, the. G- give us percentages on that pie chart. But you'd probably say it's like, uh, forty-five percent, the ownership and management. Like uh, you know, um, you would say Ed Woodward previously, and at the moment, Richard Arnold, because he hasn't done anything of any significance that has impacted the quality of football. But you would then also have to say like the football people at the club who are supposed to be good men. What percentage do they? of the blame do they own is it like 35% for Fletcher and Murta is it I mean it has to be very high because they're presiding over this they're the ones who are supposed to be the the brain like the the the, the percentage I, where the money comes from is of a, a fascination exclusively to the Manchester United fans but the money has been spent a billion has been spent they raised the money they raised the money by like selling tractors in Ukraine And uh, now they're spending that money and have spent that money on football. It's like, oh, but they didn't put any of their own money in. Yeah, fair enough. But they did also hire the people on that side of the business who seem to be doing quite a good job raising money. And um, the debt is like 500 million or whatever it is on an asset worth five and a half to eight billion, depending on, on what you're getting. So the Denver Broncos just sold for four and a half or five billion. Manchester United are worth more than the Denver Broncos. That's a newsflash to nobody, right? So the debt is actually quite a small proportion of the value of the thing, which is like the mortgage on your house is less than 10% of the value of the house. Everybody's pretty comfortable with that. Whether or not that debt goes down is largely irrelevant because if a new owner comes in, they're going to be able to pay for that pretty quickly. So that's why I don't have the glazers as like this kind of, you know, the the fish rots in the head is the only thing that's wrong. Like, Cristiano is the second greatest footballer of his generation is he he, do you have no responsibility here it was all Pogba's fault last year and then they got rid of him and the same problems persist it's like well maybe it wasn't just Pogba Uh, like De Gea is an issue you can't play that style of football with De Gea We've, we've said this like for a long period of time and he's you know centrally responsible for the killer second goal yesterday after being entirely responsible for the killer opening goal on Saturday. Uh so I would say is it 45 35 and then whatever's left vast majority of the players and then 1% Ten Hag. Like I can't I can't just blame him just yet. He might be no good. Yeah. I keep seeing the comparisons with De Boer and I'm like <laughs> that's pretty harsh. That's pretty harsh, but it has happened where somebody has come in and just been completely overwhelmed by what's going on and it turns out they weren't great because they were like uh, operating at a much lower level, it turns out. So I'm not, I'm not saying it's the boar, but you know, it's, it's, it's possible he it might be the boar.
0: Mm. Yeah, the the De Gea point you make there is actually quite damning for the manager, isn't it? That you, well, the most important cog well, in your uh, playing off in the back wheel is your goalkeeper, yeah. and Ten Hag knows he's crap at that element. But is he just trying to send a message to those that are above him, being like, we need a new goalkeeper? Well, you, but, know, you have to just let one go this summer who saved a penalty yesterday and was. Um, and it was, it was pretty impressive. So I don't know, but yeah, I think, there's, I think the pie chart thing is definitely accurate. And, and like, there is a lot of questions to be asked though about those people who are running the club with the Glazers' money. And even kind of when you look back at some of the stuff that Richard Arnold said in those conversations with fans at the pub in the off season, like there's some interesting tidbits from that, like I I kind of had a lot of sympathy for him at that point and some of the stuff that he was saying and some of the stuff kind of you you could say that he he made like reasonable arguments, like he made a point to the fans that they shouldn't be Attacking the sponsors of the clubs because if you do that, then you're hurting the team. If you love the club, you wouldn't be doing that. You wouldn't be trying to boycott these the sponsors or leaving crap reviews on whatever whatever the fans were doing the, the movement. And I'm not sure. Like I think at this point, people are like, "Well, screw that." And I can see the anger that people have will have towards the owners and the sort of the, the sabotage that may recommence on that front. I think that he's probably his stock has plummeted, but everybody's stock has plummeted over these first two weeks of the season.
3: Uh, Shifty Lad asks "Lads, were Jose and Ole actually overachieving and Tennis Tank says Christian Eriksen must be cursing his decision I don't think Christian Eriksen is cursing his decision I think things are going to work out for Eriksen over a period of time he's a good footballer and they will get more players around him who understand what he's trying to do and the next goalkeeper will chip the ball over his head and he'll be fine like there's a fairly obvious solution to that like I think the thing about getting rid of the goalkeeper is that He's the second or third highest paid goalkeeper in world football. Mm. So you can't get rid of him. No one's going to pay him. You, you you can't get any value from anybody in the world for David De Gea right now. Like, where are you going to sell him to? The only two, maybe there's a third option. There are, the, like, the, the Champions League season in, season out clubs in Spain might be interested in the fourth or fifth best Spanish goalkeeper in the world. But all three of Barcelona, Real Madrid and Atletico... Have world class goalkeepers, and they wouldn't look sideways. There's not a chance they're going to look and go, "Oh yeah, we'll take you, De Gea, and replace our guys who are getting paid less and nowhere near, or, or far better than you." That's not going to happen. So who's going to take them?
0: Yeah, I, like I don't. I think it's kind of a very short term problem for Manchester United, though. Like it. it it's, obviously with De Gea is a conversation because of how the game went on Saturday and the first uh, incident in particular was absolutely horrendous like to be fair I think even playing off from the back makes him look worse because he may, maybe just doesn't fit into a system that Ten Hag wants to play but at least his contract is, is done next summer and he'll be at the gap, and that that'll be one issue solved next summer. It's been some of the longer term contracts that are obviously a little bit harder to a little bit harder to sort. And like I mean, we had the the Jaden Sancho conversation uh, last week. I mean, the the Anthony Martial yeah, contract We were, we really we were very than, wrong than about
3: we were very wrong about all those players,
0: weren't we? Yeah, uh, <laughs> there was like there is the no, not wrong the McGuire Varan um, contracts go a bit longer as well. So at least with De Gea, his his contract expiration is. Next year, unless there's like a, another. Uh, Are you sure? It's a, unless it's 2024 that there's like a 12 month trigger or something like that that I've completely forgotten about. Um, but I, I thought that he was gone uh, next summer.
3: I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I, I would. I, it'd be good to get confirmation from the club because if that's the case, I, I I don't think it is the case. But I think um, I'm just trying to, uh, spot track. Say the end of the 24 season. Okay. Right. Um, Twenty million a year for for that. I think uh
0: transfer market said 2023 so um one of the, one of those two things is wrong so w- whatever uh, anyway it's a, it's a problem right now for Manchester United
3: it is a problem right now did you did you see Harry Archer's contract at Nottingham Forest automatically renewed for an extra season if they won promotion and they won promotion even though he was out on loan for last year so he got a pay rise and an extra year from Forrest when they won promotion. I mean, That's how football contracts work. So, I mean, it's possible that they're stuck with David Hay until like 2044. I don't know. Like the opposite of a, of, of a
0: bonus contract. It's like every position we fall down the table, uh, you will get another year in your contract.
3: All right. Is that everything else in the red? Was there something else? Yeah, no, that, I'd be that was it. Briefly, yeah, that's that's it. All right. OTVAM AM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Uh, here's what's coming up for you. Andy Mitten standing by. Uh, going to bring sports pages and news at 8.35. Daniel Harris going to join us today 50 to look at the Spurs-Chelsea game. You might ask him about Manchester United as well. Matt Williams is going to join us at 10 past nine. Now, Off the Ball has gone back to Vicker Street in association with Cadbury FC. It's a massive roadshow. It's coming your way this Wednesday night. Michael Owen, plenty for him to talk about. Ian Wright, Emma Byrne and Karen Carney are going to be our guests. There's some uh, great stories in the night as well. It's an exclusive off-air event. Tickets are limited, so don't delay. Get on to otvsports.com forward slash events. And a reminder for you, all ticket proceeds will go towards supporting Irish women's grassroots football. We're going to spend all the money that we get on tickets and buying gear for uh, Irish women's teams right around the country. After the break, we're back live with Andy Mitton to dissect what the hell that was from Man United in that first half against Brentford. Here's Vinnie Perth speaking with our own Stephen Doyle after the Battle of the Bridge yesterday, where the two lads were on live commentary for Off the Ball. Take a look.
1: I just wonder
4: is that kind of pre-season the kind of thing that will pay off across the season and perhaps in the first couple of games it can maybe have, have a bit of a negative effect
2: um, No, I thought like I actually fancy sports to win today because I felt they were ahead of uh, Chelsea as I said I, watched, I was at the Chelsea game against Everton as well last week they did a lot of cramping and, and players really struggling so I thought sports would have an advantage um, as much as I don't think we can overreact to the Chelsea result in terms of Thought they were that good, and the late goal will take the gloss off it. Um, I want to overreact to Spurs' really poor performance yeah. today. I think that squad they've built, the strength and depth they have, uh, um, even even the Conte sending off and the, the little bit of argy bargy at the end, that all adds to it. You can tell there's a there's a group building there. Um, they have real strength and depth on their bench. That's the difference between them and Chelsea. Um, so. I would say to you sports can get a lot better I think they're in a really good position um, yes they went great today but I think when you look at it, as I said the strength and depth Pizuma coming on Perisic who I think is you know, one of the best wing backs in world football uh, coming off the bench they've got real strength and depth there and um, they're in a good position and um, we, we, we've seen that at different stages that, you know, um, they, they'll be okay both, both these teams are short I would say from City and Liverpool but they're certainly going the right direction, and their recruitment is over the summer for sports Have been, has been top class.
4: Yeah, you'd say it's probably just a bad day at the office for the likes of Kulishevsky, who we know he got eleven, sorry, five goals and eight assists in thirteen, eighteen Premier League matches last season. We know Son and Kane what they can do, so these players will be better just interested to know as well where you think Richarlison fits in and all that because yeah. will he have to fight his way into the
2: starting team he will and that's where going back to the strength and depth was the game was gone against Spurs they were really poor and when he came on he, uh, they changed the shape it was more of a four four two, and 2 Richarlison played up front with um, uh, Kane and he gave that Chelsea back three who were like Silva was playing with slippers for 65 minutes they put them under a lot of pressure and that helped them get back into the game and you always felt as much as Chelsea then got control of the game after that 10 minute spell you always felt um, Spurs were in the game because of Richardson because of his work rate just being the annoyance around the box and when they had to clear the lines, they had an out ball and I think um, there's different ways of, of playing but you would say that how do you get uh, Son, uh, Kuliszewski, Richardson, and Kane into a front four it's going to be very difficult but at the same time um, it's nice to have one of them in reserve at any stages when you need to go and win games and that's probably the I, I would say to you, Spurs' front three is as good as anything in the in the league and to have someone like Richardson sitting on the bench is a huge plus and I would say I don't think Chelsea have that same strength and depth
1: OTB
3: AM. OK, it's
2: 11 minutes past eight we're
3: turning to one of the two big stories from the world of football it's uh, finished 4-0 obviously between Brentford and Manchester United, you know that by now but what's the future? I'm delighted to say Andy Mitten is with us again this morning. Andy, it's hard to know where to start with this. Um, we were talking about the the pie chart of blame. It's obviously the Glazers. It's the football people at the club. It's the players. It's the current manager you've kind of not given a free pass to, but certainly you'd be concerned about the start. In that hierarchy of, of um, who who bears responsibility for this, uh, how much how much time needs to be spent talking about the players and how they are performing at the moment
5: well they 're partly culpable because they 're the ones on the pitch who can do something about it, and they 're failing uh, same with with the manager so i don 't think you can put all of the blame onto any one party, but that first half at Brentford was horrific four goals in in twenty five minutes, and the players failed to follow through the manager 's tactical instructions you could equally say that the manager failed with those tactical instructions because uh, Brentford, like Brighton a week before um, successfully targeted and exploited what they perceived to be Manchester United's uh, weaknesses uh, in free kicks, in in throw-ins from set pieces and, and down the middle as well. And they succeeded just like Brighton had done. So, Talk about the players. You can talk about the manager, and then you can talk about the wider issues, such as the the ownership at the club, which has seen a pretty long term decline in in Manchester United. Uh, it doesn't feel like
3: there is a short term fix to any of this at the moment. Like, unless three world class players are suddenly signed and transform the team's fortunes, that uh, this is a, a long term dig in battle in the trenches and you're you're kind of thinking who are the leaders going to be of that part of the project and then it comes back to Ten Hag and um, what have you seen so far that gives you any confidence
5: or comfort about the fact that he is going to be the right man for this job? I I saw a very positive pre-season. You you mentioned the word leaders. I I spoke to Bruno Fernandes two weeks ago about leadership and he's pretty convinced him uh, with, with what he said, but I, I take your first point, there's going to be no quick fixes here, at least to my knowledge, and it's a very worrying start to the season for Manchester United, beaten deservedly so in the first two games against teams who were unlikely to be in the top four in the Premier League this season, so it, it, it's alarming, and it's not just this season, the defeat of Brentford was the seventh consecutive league defeat for Manchester United. You've got to go back to 1936 to find out when that last happened. So that's why fans are furious, um, with with good reason. Um, I think that any new manager deserves time and that includes Eric Ten Hag. He needs support. He needs to be able to bring in more of the players that he wants to bring in. But again, this isn't going to be turned around in weeks or even months. Um, The problem they've got is it's just the latest instalment of what seems to be a continuing story of of hire and fire. And United, I'm sure, have intentions to be patient and support the managers and would argue that the managers have been supported in terms of the players that they've signed. So we bring in a, another factor here, which is the recruitment. United, have, uh, the, the scouting department, has regularly identified players' emerging talents who the club should be signing for one reason or another those players have not been signed and lots of them have gone on to be very successful elsewhere whereas lots of the players who Manchester United have signed have, have underperformed and underwhelmed Are they signing players
3: still who the manager wants uh, It's like, of course they have to sign players who the manager wants and previously we were given to understand that Solskjaer would have had the veto on, on players coming and going and it seemed like there was a, a, a sense at least that Solskjaer wanted to play a certain way and the players were bought to suit him. It just feels in the long run, ultimately you end up with a collection of players that Jose Mourinho wanted, you end up with a collection of players that uh, Solskjaer wanted, you end up with a collection of players that Ten Hag wanted, as opposed to a collection of players who are Manchester United players and so therefore whoever comes in is going to be able to mould them to what it is that they're trying to achieve week in, week out.
5: Yeah, that, that's a fair comment. Josie Mourinho and and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer did mould them into something resembling a coherent team. They both finished second in the league, which is a a big achievement for for both of them. And the players there now is a collection of players going right back to when Sir Alex Ferguson was there, all been signed by different managers. But then you you do get that at other clubs as well. If you look at some of the biggest clubs in the world, they're, they're full of players who've been signed by different managers. But there seems to be a lacking strategy um, from Manchester United what was supposed to happen was that a a new football structure was put in place which would see to better recruitment better better signings and we've yet to see the evidence of that John Murtagh is working very hard this summer to bring players in and three players have arrived and none have convinced really so far maybe Terrell Malassia who did, did well in the second half against Brentford but the main target for de Jong, is still to arrive. So that shows it's a very difficult market for Manchester United to get the players in. But that doesn't wash with fans who are seeing other clubs getting players in, winning football matches. And United will always be judged by results. And if you look at the league table right now, Manchester United at the bottom of the league. Now that's only two games in, it's still very, very early. But the calendar year 2022 has been horrific for Manchester United. In fact, if you go back to last October... And September, uh, first of all, with Oli Gunnar Solskjaer losing his job, it's been a really, really poor period for Manchester United. And that's why we're talking about where the blame should be apportioned now in, the, in this conversation. Uh, what happened yesterday? Uh, like, What's your
0: information beyond the fact that they obviously had to run 13.8 kilometres in training to make up for the kilometres that they did not run against Brentford?
5: Yeah, I was told that the players were were called in for training. It was, it was supposed to be... Uh, a, a day off uh, I was supposed to have one myself but when Manchester United lose football matches like that my phone doesn't stop it's quite ironic that your words and get, get read more in times like this than any others and I get more calls from media outlets as well when Manchester United are losing rather than winning it's just such a huge story I actually went to Barcelona on Saturday night, I watched Frankie de Jong um, my next game will be Manchester United-Liverpool. I don't want to put too much thought, thought in, in, into that one. But the Barcelona story, even though that's a big one, it just pales completely to, to how big Manchester United is. So the players were, uh, were in training, in the heat um, at Carrington. The manager's got to quickly try and make some sense uh, of all this because I felt he did successfully build... Uh, Some form of confidence pre-season. He he picked the mood off the floor. I was there at all of those games and there were lots of encouraging signs and that all just went pop and crashing down to earth with the defeat against Brighton and got even worse with the defeat against Brentford. And it looks really daunting now for Manchester United. Look at the next opponents. Liverpool, as I said. um, Southampton, that'll be a draw because United always draw at Southampton in August. Uh, Leicester away. Leicester scored four past United last season and then Arsenal at Old Trafford. So these are really worrying times for Manchester United fans.
0: Everything just feels so existential all the time, doesn't it? That You mentioned it's, of course, it it goes back a long time. This is not just a, a new, this doesn't feel like a new season. It feels like a continuation of a previous one. But it feels that everything bad that goes wrong at Manchester United is just amplified times a million. And that comes with the the territory of being a huge club but it also just comes with the legacy of of fans being unhappy with how the club is run despite the success that they had to distract themselves from, from that during the year like there was there no other sports organisation out venture in the world that could lose one or two games at the start of a
5: season and it feels like the whole world is ending maybe real madrid and barcelona with similarities there I remember a, a rookie manager called Joseph Guardiola losing his first game at, at Barcelona, and people saying this guy's not cut out for management; he's a disgrace. And so, you, I would always be wary of knee-jerk reactions. But I think the worries of a lot of United fans are. Are genuine and are well founded, and it's not just about these these two results. As I said, seven consecutive home defeats. And United is a huge story, so I've got editors saying to me, "More, more, more!" Your stuff's getting record number of hits. My, like, well, thanks. I'd, I'd much be rather writing about a successful Manchester United team, but it shows what humans are like, don't they? Humans like to stop and look at car crashes. They like to peer over the the mess, the carcass. Um, and and Manchester United is a mess at the moment and people are fascinated by it it's like I used the line yesterday it's like a ghoulish soap opera for the fans who are going to the matches but the fans still go they sell out the tickets you couldn't get a spare ticket for Brentford on Saturday it was really really hard Liverpool next week um, there's talk of protest but it's still a really hard ticket so in some ways logic doesn't apply and you can use that as a positive or a negative. You can say the loyalty to the fans is, is incredible, but you could also say that loyalty is also the reason why the, the Glazers took over in the first place. That um, point you make
3: about the protest, we've actually had a comment in. Can you ask Andy Mitten about whether the reported boycott of the Liverpool game will take place? I'm supposed to go over next week and i spent 400 quid. I don't want to go over to stand outside Old Trafford.
5: It's M Lawler who's asking that. Well, that, M um, is absolutely entitled to go inside Old Trafford and use the ticket, which has been purchased for the game. I I think with boycotts, it's always risky. Several have been tried over the years. None have really fully come off. There is a lot of anger in the air among Manchester United fans. So I'm sure there will be protests, maybe uh, a bigger pre-match protest than we saw against Brighton, which was three or four 100 100 strong and there's lots of ideas bubbling around and the club don't have a problem with um, legitimate and peaceful uh, protests. I think they understand why the fans uh, are angry Um, and online you've got so many people with the solutions but it's such a complicated issue as well. Uh, Fans who go to matches hate being told what to do by fans who don't go to matches and People are saying, "Well, if no one goes inside Old Trafford for the game, then the Glazers will quickly tire of this." And I think there's a genuine point there. If Old Trafford was empty, then it would be a worldwide story, just as it was when the, the game against Liverpool um, was cancelled because of because of other protests. So there's lots of areas of uh, where, which United fans are talking about in terms of protest. I think sometimes the strongest protest just comes from within terms of the, the reaction inside the stadium, the fans making their feelings clear. And looking at that Liverpool game, it looks absolutely daunting. You just wouldn't be surprised if Liverpool put four or five past Manchester United right now. From somewhere, Manchester United have got to, to, to recover. Um, it can't be as bad as the playing, surely. These are good players individually. A lot of them are good. They're not that good, but they're not that bad.
3: Some of them might be that bad. Harry Maguire might not be up to playing football for Manchester United at this level. Although they spent eighty million, the fallacy of sunk costs would suggest that continuing to play him is actually going to end up, in the long run, being worse for the club than actually cutting your your um, your losses. And then there's obviously the issue of the goalkeeper and whether or not he suits the new manager style. It appears, and the evidence, would seem to suggest that they're not a good fit. That's not not to say that he can't play well for certain managers with
5: certain styles but for Ten Hag he might not
3: be the right guy despite what Ten Hag says it it
5: doesn't look good good at the moment does it at all and you mentioned two players uh, I could go through the whole squad none of them have performed so far uh, this season the bottom line is Ten Hag's the manager and he chooses them and he lives and dies by those decisions Uh, you cannot continue to have players playing poorly um, playing all the time. The goalkeeper situation is more complicated because Dean Henderson was was let go. He's on loan at Nottingham Forest. Uh, we saw him playing really well in Forest's first Premier League game for 23 years. Uh, the, the next goalkeeper at the moment is Tom and So I, I understood throughout the summer that Manchester United were looking at bringing another goalkeeper in. That may happen. Uh, to be fair to David Dehir, he, he took blame and stood up and fronted up after the game at, at Brentford. But again, what does that mean when you've lost uh, 4-0? All of these players are still getting paid huge amounts um, and underperforming in their duties as Manchester United players. It's really, really not good enough. And at the end of the game, the players went over to the away fans and they thanked them for the support, fair enough. And they got a, a clear reaction from the away fans as to how they felt as well. There's there's, there's mutiny in the air among a lot of Manchester United fans at the moment. There's absolute fury around among the fans at the moment because um, it has been so bad. And what happens when United start playing the top teams? It really shouldn't be coming to this. I've seen Manchester... The lowest I've seen United finish in the table was uh, 13th under Sir under Alex Ferguson in uh, 1990. But even though United were, were, were big payers then, um, United were coming off a spell in the 80s when Liverpool had been so dominant, Everton were successful too, but United didn't have the financial power that they have now. The current players are among the best paid players in the world. The level of underachievement is staggering. That moment when the fans let the players know what
0: they thought of them on Saturday, uh, there was some disagreement between Ronaldo and, and Steve McLaren after
5: that, where is it, is, Ronaldo just doesn't go over to the fans, is that is that right? He went partly towards okay. the fans and then he then he turned back and there looked to be a disagreement. I don't know what words were, were spoken there. The issue of Ronaldo needs sorting out. That's what I do know. Is he going to stay and give it his best or does he want to go? If he wants to go, let him go. Um, and it's a problem. It is a problem. I can argue both sides. If he stays, then... Manchester United keep a very popular proven goal scorer uh, but again this is on the manager the manager's got to make some really big decisions you mentioned Maguire De Gea, Ronaldo the, the manager had, had the respect of the players pre-season and I think he genuinely is a good coach uh, but he's got to make some really tough decisions now harder to make those decisions when the players you've wanted have not yet been been brought in so Manchester United need to bring some players in before the end of this this transfer window. That's another factor as well.
3: It's okay. It's relatively straightforward to make those decisions if you think you're going to get the benefit of long-term support. So say, for example, he was to somehow find a buyer or whatever to get rid of those players out of the squad and not have the them be replaced at a finish of 12th or 13th. Does Sen Hag get the benefit then of like actually adding in the new players and getting the year of experience that the young players get next year, or is there is that cycle of boom and bust or bust and bust as it is at the moment going to going to follow? He, does he have the confidence that he actually has enough long range here to be able to say, okay, actually, you know what, Ronaldo, that's fine, you 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 go, and we're not going to pick Harry Maguire because actually, ultimately, it's not my job that to get a transfer fee for him and. Um, Or does he feel like he'll just get fired at the end of the season if they finish
5: 13th? You say it's okay moving players on. It's it's really difficult. Ronaldo has been offered to probably a dozen clubs in Europe this summer and none of them have taken him. So it's difficult. The only offer I understand which has been uh, credible was from a club in in Saudi Arabia, which obviously the the player has has not chosen to do that. I think now Ten Hag will be... Getting reassured that he's going to be supported, and I think United have supported their managers. They've given each of them a couple of years, uh, apart from David Moyes, who got who got nine months, um, and they've been they backed them in terms of buying players. The recruitment has not been good, um, and we're judging this with the benefit of hindsight because at the time, when players like Bastian Schweinsteiger were, were signed to come in. I remember United fans thinking, great, great, great. And they're just not working out. So, why are they not working out? I think that Ten Hag will be getting reassured at the moment. Um, it's not a situation that he had with Ralph Rangnick where relationships were breaking down after a month of him uh, being there. Um, United have got to support Ten Hag. He's the manager, he's the man who's been chosen to, to lead the team. And there's no choice but to support him. This isn't Real Madrid. I remember once speaking to Carlos Queiroz and he was manager of Real Madrid and his president, who made all the decisions, didn't speak to him from September until the end of the season when he sacked him. And that's the way that that, that, that club works. And somehow it does work for them. Um, I think at Manchester United, it's very inclusive in terms of supporting and communicating with the manager, um, looking at his, his objectives, the players he wants to bring in. But the whole system is not working. And again, you've got to go back to the owners. The owners are making these these appointments. This isn't something new. This isn't us moaning because United have been winning trophies. One of the biggest clubs in the world has not won a trophy now for five years. It's failing. It is failure. This is what failure looks like. And you've got owners on the other side of the Atlantic who are deeply unpopular with fans. So that adds nothing at all to the... The mood; it just detracts from the mood. Just like they extract money in terms of the dividends they pay, they say they're comfortable with those dividends as they are with the debt. But are you asking me if the the Glazers are competent owners? I've really struggled to say that they are.
3: I, I think uh, that's clear. Like that's definitely clear, and a lot of sympathy with the the United fans who, who want a change of ownership. And like a change of ownership is is as likely to happen as not at this point you know we're not going to hear about it really until it actually happens but american sports franchises get sold all the time that's the model they're used to we're probably entering a period of uh, global uncertainty where they might feel like the assets at its peak at the moment particularly with the way things are going on the field so maybe they take an eight billion offer and they cash out and and the united fans are happy is it true look the, the the speculation is that there is corporate pressure on the club to keep Ronaldo because of his value in driving eyeballs from a content perspective. Do you think that's true that actually the manager might want to cancel the contract and let him go to sporting but there is corporate pressure to say you can't do that because actually that's going to cost us at some level?
5: I've, I've heard it but I've not had any hot, hard evidence of that um, and to be fair to United they have let the managers do what they want to do. Again, this is not Real Madrid, where you've got somebody saying, this player has got to play. Again, Real Madrid are, keep winning everything, so maybe that is that is the, the way forward, and I, I don't think it is. But I think that Ronaldo's numbers, in terms of the commercial value that he brought to the club, are, are definitely high and definitely important. But then he's the best-paid player in the Premier League one of the best-paid players in the world. So there's a pro and con for him staying or going. I think the bottom line is if he's adding to the team and to the dressing room, then he should stay. And if he's not, then he should go. Like, if he wants to go, then he he should go. Um, I've only been told of one example, which I can completely back up with my sources, and that was several years ago, Anthony Martial, a club were interested in him and it was put to him, no, 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 the Glazers won't allow Martial to be sold. Uh, And there was another time when Jose Mourinho wanted to get rid of Martial and was told the same thing. Uh, Now I think, well, up until the start of this season, United would have sold Anthony Martial, but I've heard the rumours about uh, Cristiano, but I speak to people at the club all the time. I've got a lot of sources there. I've done this for a long, long time. And I've not heard that where I could back it up okay. and go to court and say I've got confidence in my sources there. Why do the Glazers love Anthony Martial so much? Um, well, this would be going back three or four years. I think they thought that he was going to be the next Pele right. or Messi or Maradona, um, which probably shows how much the Glazers know about football. Uh, one other question I had, Andy. just You say there
0: that the Glazers, not the Glazers, the, the, I guess the structure at the, the club allows the manager to do what he wants to do. Now, I know that recruitment isn't the only issue I mean the the, the players that, that are there should be doing better than they are but when it comes to recruitment does Ten Hag almost have too much power or has he got too much influence over the players that they're signing like I mean it, it does feel like Ten Hag's ideas have been the ideas that they've run with in the off season with regards to their signings and of course the manager should have a huge say in it but You look around at some of the other clubs, whether it's Bagheera Stein or Edu, and and they're kind of making up a a very uh, coherent transfer strategy. It feels that that is totally lacking uh, at Manchester United and they're happy enough to almost subtly allow the blame
5: to land at the door of the manager because these are Ten Hag's players. It it feels like it because it is. The manager is getting the players that he wants to bring in at the moment. This is against a backdrop of fans being circumspect because players were signed by by Ed Woodward who fans felt this, there's no planning gone into this. This has been a call from the agent at, at the last minute. Uh, Begiristein is probably the, the best example of a, a club which does it well. You've got the sports director working in tandem with the manager. There's respect there. There's a long-standing relationship and it doesn't exist at Manchester United at the moment. You've got a scouting department identifying players. I could give you 20 players now who Manchester United have identified over the years and i have either gone for him or passed on the player and it doesn't reflect well on the fact that United have managed to pull it off. Now, clubs are never going to get all the players that they want. United are not as attractive as the club used to be. United put a huge amount of work into Jude Bellingham, for example, and ultimately his family decided to... that that he would be better playing first-team football uh, in Dortmund. I think United are pretty clean in terms of the way that they negotiate, Um, maybe to a fault. I spoke to people at FC Barcelona last week and they said Manchester United have been very correct. Uh, But I spoke to a former player a year ago who said United have lost uh, the ability to do the dark arts of transfers in terms of getting players in. So am I going to criticise a club for not being corrupt there? And no, I'm, I'm not. Um, but the bottom line is the players who the club won um, are, are not coming in. And you, they're tracking. They're getting them at really early stages in their career. So I saw last week Sesko moved from Salzburg to Leipzig. United had him at 16. And there were big complications with the agents, which sometimes happens. And it's still happening because... Agents look at United and think there's real money there. We can pull the pants down. And part of me respects Manchester United for saying, no, we're we're not having that. But the bottom line is if United keep on missing out on the players that end up being successful, that is also a worry. You've got a scouting department who are bringing the players forward who are now being ignored because the manager uh, is having his say. So that leads to more dysfunction and and more frustration uh, within the club all along being driven by fans who want more and more players and to be honest at the moment I can understand why fans want more players because the ones on the pitch are not achieving like they should be doing
3: Andy great to have you with us this morning thanks a million for making the time for us cheers thank you It's Andy Mitten there you can read his stuff in uh, United We Stand and of course The Athletic and you can follow him on Twitter as well uh, what, what's your what, what do you think is going to happen here I think that this would I think
0: Manchester United need to finish lower than they did last season. I think they need to completely bottom out um, and that just needs to happen and as you said there we've almost gone from a boom-bust cycle to a bust-bust-bust cycle and I think that the latter could almost be better. I think that could be better than a sixth-place finish. I'm not saying it will be like a Chelsea-type resurgence like Chelsea have been able to do in the past but when Chelsea finished 10th they won the Premier League title the next season. Very different situation. I accept that they just won the, the title before finishing 10th But I think maybe they got away with it a little bit last season with where they did finish. I think that maybe finishing even lower, finishing like a couple of places lower, not even being in contention for the Europa League places. I think more hard questions needed to be asked during the summer, which clearly haven't been asked. Now, I'm sure a lot of the Manchester United fans are like, how can that be possible? What are you even talking about, given how furious they were all throughout last season? But it seems that not enough has changed. and. Even after finishing sixth last season, then I, I don't know. It seems that it seems that they've taken the, the managerial change as this sort of flag that there is a, a new broom and everything will be
3: fixed. And but they needed to bring Edwin van der Sar alongside him to to run things, and or somebody right in the background who has some football experience. Now maybe van der Sar is completely the wrong guy. I don't know, but somebody who it's like a partnership where. Mm there's, like, somebody else whose job it is to go out and say, well, actually, these are our strategic aims. These are the pillars that we're building the team on. We have this excellent youth system that is producing players who we believe are either going to be able to um, uh, realise some value for us by we're going to give them time playing, like Man City have just raised loads of money by selling players who never played any first-team football or were never in first-team squads for them for any sustained period of time over the summer. And then we also have this great scouting department, and these are the players that we're looking know." There's n- there's none of that. There's like uh, leaks coming from that portion of the building that are actually undermining the manager. Who they're now is like, oh well, it's all his fault. Mm. It's all, it's only it's only Dutch players because that's all he knows. It's like, well, where, where's the rest of the department? Where's yeah, the, where's who's given who's given him the hand? Yeah, like now the five foot nine centre back. It's a bit of an issue. Fine. You know, you need somebody who's like gonna camouflage that. When it comes to the set pieces, maybe you could. Tend you're a striker, and we'll get one of the strikers to go up against their big lad. Mm. That would be helpful. Well, that, that, that might help a bit for sure, but it, I
0: think he's, it, it already has the bang of
3: a man being hung out to drive after <laughs> two games. Away. Yeah, yeah, and it's not going to get any better. This day next week, they're playing Liverpool. Mm. I can't wait for the build up to that. The, pro- now, the, the protest
0: element of that is going to be fascinating.
3: Well, it, will, yeah, it's Liverpool. You Do you not show up? Do you not go in and cheer the team on when they desperately need you? I think it will. What be. if they button in the hatches and get a famous nil all? But the thing is, you could you could strategically thinking here organize
0: a walkout protest. There's a chance that the game could be over after 25 minutes. 25 minutes. So you yeah. just you, you see the the entire competitive element of the game, and you also get your point made by walking out after 25 minutes. Yeah. They'd probably beat Liverpool, in but then
3: way. it's football—you're you're leaving a live football match where, like you've as you said, pay four hundred quid, and it's Liverpool. It's, yeah. uh, you can't walk out, can no. you?
0: No, it's like—and the people will have had <laughs> tickets and flights <laughs> booked <both, laughs> months in advance. You know what? What will be the first? Like, I mean, what what will be the first game we go to this season, son? What, what, which would you like to go to, Liverpool? Yes, that'll be good. New manager, it'll be happy times. Yeah, and all of a sudden they're thinking, God, we have to walk out. Manchester United is? fans
3: here, right ahead of our FC roadshow this Wednesday evening, we're going to be deciding on the top five most influential Irish players in both the men's and women's game a reminder tickets for the show on Vicar Street are on sale ticket proceeds will go towards supporting grassroots Irish women's football check out otbsports.com forward slash events for teas and season wars and we'll see you on the night back after this with the sports pages first legendary Sonia Sullivan was on Saturdays off the ball explaining how she won the Dublin Marathon while on a book tour take a look
4: so the Dublin Marathon you rock up there in 2000 after winning silver in Sydney and you win the Dublin Marathon Uh, so what was that experience like?
6: (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't very prepared for that (laughs) i was just it was weird because i think after the olympics there was so much going on and that was taking me away from running and all i wanted to do was get back to running and i was just sitting in a cafe over here in teddington one day and richard naruka a british marathon runner was in there and he just mentioned to me that he was going over to the dublin marathon and he said the date and i said oh that's the same date i'm launching my book i said maybe i'll run and then all of a sudden I just had this idea in my head that I had something to focus on. And um, I spoke to my coach at the time, you know, who <laughs> I don't know how he agreed to allow me to do this, but he said, oh, if you can go out and do a couple of two-hour runs, you'll probably be fine. And, um, you know, I just approached it very relaxed. It wasn't, you know, with any huge kind of um, chasing any goals or targets or anything like that. Um, and just, I suppose, it looked realistic that I could win it. If everything worked out properly, and but I remember I got to 18 miles, and I'd never been that far before in my life, and um, yeah, it got hard then. <laughs> and I, then I had to really concentrate and work hard in, and yeah, I was pretty sore afterwards.
7: What's been some buzz, Sonia?
6: It was it was great, but you know, back then it wasn't like what the Dublin Marathon is now. When I ran it in 2015, it was so much greater. It was amazing. I can just remember running through the Phoenix Park and out there at. Um, is it Castlenock Gate and the crowds out there cheering and you just get such a buzz and a lift when all these people are cheering. And um, as you go and then you go to a quiet spot and you can get back into your zone again and just run along and relax a little bit. And then, you know, you, you just take the lifts when you get them, I think, and go with it. And I can remember a friend of mine was going to come out and see me in Ratgar and it was running down just before we turned off. And I'm, I was looking for him because that was kind of what was getting me to that point was because I knew somebody was going to come out and cheer me on and it was a bit windy and cold and he had a hat on him so I didn't recognize him and he recognized that as I was just turning the corner and he took his hat off and waved. and you know the, the lift that that gives you is amazing it's such a buzz you know to have people out there cheering for you and to, and to spot your friends and family in the crowd.
3: That's Sonia Sullivan there talking about the marathon. That was our Saturday panel. Uh, Kieran Cuddy is going to run the marathon and uh, raising money for cancer research. So if you can support him, please do. And you can subscribe to the OTB panel discussions On your podcast feed. Now, Carl Maloney is with us at 8.44 this morning to run through what's going on. Carl, good morning to you. Good morning, lads. How's it going? Very good. Uh, An interesting weekend on a lot of different fronts.
4: Yeah, I know. Um, What's the bigger story? Manchester United's capitulation or the big handshake
3: gate from yesterday? I think we're going to remember the Manchester United capitulation forever. (laughs) It's like this is uh, this is their startling descent into a period of hell. That's what my prediction is for Manchester United. It's going to get far worse. I got, I got laughed out of the studio like four months ago when I was like, oh, Newcastle going to finish ahead of Man United next season. Like, ah, it's ridiculous. What are you talking about? Like, now you're thinking, are there 10 teams who might finish ahead of Manchester United this year? There might be. It's not ridiculous to suggest it. Their fixture list over the next month is horrific.
4: Mm. It's, I, I, to be honest, I didn't think it could get worse, but it has. And the demeanour of Ten Hag in his interview after. and I mean, it's so early on in his tenure for him to be questioning the players' mentality and uh, application of what he wants them to do. I mean, you can't really backtrack from comments like that. And, you know, the only solution is that they get better. If they don't get better...
3: That's why. I I, I think he backed that up by bringing them in for training yesterday, and and there was some suggestion that the athletic staff had been concerned about training the previous week and the effort that was being put in. So they're getting on top of it. It's not like in in the past. I think Solskjaer might have come out and said something to somehow deflect or whatever. I know you're not supposed to get out about your players, right? But they're not ten hags players. So he come out and says, "This is rubbish. They're not doing this." if he gets a few more bodies in picks a few of the kids ostracises those who he doesn't want to pick then I think he's got he's got a little window to actually be able to affect some change now that change is going to maybe get them to eight, perhaps
0: I'm not sure but like that like that's that's an interesting kind of case study the, the sort of the, the bad cop that Ten Hag could potentially be like would being the bad cop not have constituted dropping Cristiano Ronaldo entirely like he plays a big part the first week of the season and starts the second game. Plays the full, plays the whole game against Brentford on, on Saturday. And Do you think that's punishment or that's uh okay. Maybe, <laughs> maybe that's, maybe that's, maybe you're like, you leave him out there, hang him out, maybe you hang him out to dry. I guess my perspective on it is that he's being rewarded with a, with a place in the starting team. I, I know that there are very few options, uh, to, to choose from when it comes to the number nine position for, for Manchester United, but it feels that there was an opportunity to take a stance. On the Ronaldo situation, and the point you make, these aren't my players. I didn't sign Cristiano Ronaldo. Mm. You, can, you, you can be frozen out now because of, of what's gone on. Now, maybe privately, Ronaldo and Ten Hag have had conversations and er, er, everything is fine, and maybe the, 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 the reports outside have blown up the, the, the misdemeanors of Cristiano Ronaldo more than they really were. But it looks like Cristiano Ronaldo is a bit of a problem in that dressing room, and Ten Hag declined the opportunity to freeze him out properly. He put him on the bench, sure, but then he came on and then he started the second week.
3: Yeah, I think that um, Ronaldo will be gone at the end of this transfer window. And I think Ten Hag is using this to, if he's smart, and I think he is smart, is he's using this period of time to kind of drive that wedge further between Ronaldo, the fans, and the club's hierarchy. And he's like, look, he's, he's actually useless to us now. He's actually useless Possibly. to us. Now, yeah. if I was Ten Hag, I would also be taking whatever offer I can get for Bruno and trying to send De Gea out and loan and... Uh, will anybody give you anything for Harry Maguire? Like, get them out, burn them all out now. Bruno, though, take really? the paint. Yeah, well, he's he's not going to he's not going to fit in that style of play.
0: Yeah, no, I I see your point. But like, but when he, was the last time he was actually really good? You, you look at that front four like Rashford, Ronaldo, Sancho, S- S- R- Bruno. What's your power rankings of that uh, man Rushmore up front? They're all like they're all fifth. Like uh, Bru- all on the bench. I presume
3: Bruno, in your opinion, is the best of that four. I mean. Uh, or, or the uh, most useful is he the most useful I don't know uh, maybe, maybe like if you play him as a number 10 and you get Ronaldo out of the club and you can back the penalties and he's got a bit of confidence going again but like tactically anarchic was how he was described in a piece last year by Miguel Delaney and that was I think that, that come from one of the, came from one of the, the rivals who was like "Well, you, what are you going to do with Bruno like, you haven't a clue what he's going to do over a, a period of time um, so like I would actually have ideally Eriksen as your number 10 and then after that you're just trying to fit bodies in like warm bodies give me Anthony Alanga and give me another season of him playing week in week out maybe you can turn Jaden Sancho into something in that scenario and then you have a, a number nine and I like I, none of those are I want. I want I don't want any of them but if I have to I'm probably going back to Rashford as my number nine going I realise this is not your best position but our, our Martial like I don't know when his porcelain hamstrings are, are going to be fixed again but um so I don't know that I would I would make that a bigger story than the handshake personally but the yeah. handshake's good crack
4: the handshake is good crack and uh, the match itself was good crack um, there was lots to it I think Spurs that was a game they definitely wouldn't have gotten anything from I think in recent seasons but Conte definitely has uh, put a little bit of steel into them and they were quite cynical uh, throughout the game now, they probably were fortunate in that they were fouls they looked like fouls anyway in the build up to both goals um, but I get the sense that Spurs uh, will be very, very sticky opposition, even to to the likes of Liverpool and Manchester City this season. I think they're going to stick it out and potentially get that third spot. But Chelsea played quite well too. Um, So I I had the sense of a game of two heavyweights, I thought, yesterday uh, on the line. Now, the antics of both managers, uh, are we there for that? I think we probably are. I am To be honest.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I know it's a bit petty, but I think it's very oh, good. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Give give me that all day long. And I I do think it's gonna have an impact on Tuchel standing in the club and like the fans love it. It's um all that stuff is very nebulous, right? And if if they were to lose three games the fans would be like, Oh, he lost control, what are he doing? But I think um he's won over. He's he's not just this cool, boring individual. There's a bit more to him, I think, is what they're gonna think. And I would tend to agree with it a little bit. Um, we should talk about the golf, though, because uh, it ended up in a playoff. But the big story happened when, um a two-stroke penalty for nearly the latest world number one before the final round. Mm. And um, yeah, we're still waiting to see exactly when he goes to live. But um, Cam Smith. Bit of an interesting thing there. So Cam Smith was in contention. And if yeah. he wins the tournament, he goes to world number one. And that's like a massive coup for Liv. So they're dying for him to get to world number one. But um, they found a way to give him a two-stroke well, penalty. yeah, I'm not sure. That, I'm not sure is that the uh, conspiracy theories in this
4: case. I think Thomas Bjorn had a tweet as well about it that uh, he thought the penalty was, I think, applied in the right fashion, if uh, I'm not mistaken. But it is an interesting one and coincidental, certainly. But uh, Cam Smith has, I think, taken quite a lot of flack. I think the atmosphere around him is is really, really poor. Uh, on the tour, I think I saw a video um, on, was it Thursday or Friday? I think he was playing with Scotty Scheffler. And Scheffler just walked directly across his line uh, on the green. And Scheffler, <coughs> I think, has been outspoken enough about uh, Defectors to Live. Um, so it is getting, it's getting it's getting very, very sticky. And uh, I won't say nasty, but it is there's certainly a pretty bad atmosphere surrounding it. I think he just should go to Live now. Uh He's prolonging it. Everyone knows that he's going, essentially. Um, the longer that he stays out there, the worse it's going to get in terms of atmosphere. So I think he will be doing probably himself and everybody a favour if he just confirmed the news now and, uh, and defected to live. Yeah.
0: They're definitely going to start leading into this WWE style, aren't they? The, the beef between people, like uh, Greg Norman did an interview with Australian Golf Digest and a uh, very off the cuff remark about yeah, yeah. Uh, Roy McIlroy. It wasn't off the cuff at all. It was a carefully curated one about yeah. the precise number of weeks he needs to spend at number one and precise number of tournament wins he needs to, to surpass him. Uh, drawing back to the Royal McIlroy Oh, Norman's basically Duke. saying show us your medals. Yeah, exactly. to uh, something that McIlroy said two months ago, let's not forget. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he finally got around to, to his rebuke. Yeah, it's, uh, it's just... The atmosphere
4: around the whole thing is terrible. It's just terrible. I think, Jer, you called it from an early stage that everybody's going to come together and uh, sort all this out. I think that's going to happen, and it's going to to have to happen at this stage. So. Anything else going on? Well, uh, let's uh, just take a look at some of the other football action. Of course, one game tonight in the Premier League, uh, Liverpool take on Crystal Palace. Kickoff for that one is at eight. In uh, the SSE, Artricity League Premier Division yesterday, St Pat's beat Sliger Rovers by a goal to nil. One game tonight in the First Division, Cork City take on Waterford. That's a Turner's Cross from a quarter to eight. Busy day ahead at the European Athletics Championships for Irish athletes. A total of 12 Irish athletes scheduled to be involved in today's action. The first of them is Eric Favours, up at uh, around nine o'clock this morning. ...in the shot puck qualification rounds. And that's going to be followed by the women's marathon at around about half past nine. Fanula McCormack, Eva Cook and Anne-Marie Glynn among the participants there. In the pool this evening in Rome at the European Aquatic Championships, Mona McSharry is in medal contention. She's in the final of the 200-metre breaststroke shortly after five o'clock uh, this evening. McSharry qualified in fourth place uh, overall. In golf, as mentioned, Will Zalatoris won his first PGA Tour title last night after taking victory at the St. Jude Championship in Memphis... He beat Sepp Straka on the 3rd playoff hole to secure the win. They both finished on 15 under par. Shane Larry was in a tie for 46th on 4 under. Leona Maguire, meanwhile, uh, put in a good final round at the World Invitational at Gallengorum gorm in County Antrim yesterday, finishing on 10 under par overall for a 10th place finish. Maya Stark of Sweden winning there on 20 under and Scotland's Ewan Ferguson won the men's event on 12 under par. Uh, in cricket today, Ireland take a 2-1 series lead into their fourth one-day international match with Afghanistan this afternoon. That gets underway at half past three at Stormont and there's racing at Dundalk and Roscommon today uh, the first at Dundalk goes to post at ten past two while the first of seven in Roscommon is off at half five
3: alright good stuff Carl. thanks very much for that it's uh, 8.54 I'm um, delighted to say Daniel Harris is with us but not primarily to talk about Manchester United because Daniel you were on the minute by minute for the Guardian yesterday in the Chelsea Spurs game and uh, we wanted to get your thoughts on Handshake Gate this is great stuff and uh, my favourite bit is where Antonio Conte looks down at his hand and Thomas Tuchel is still holding it. And Antonio Conte has never in his life been as disrespected in that moment. That's um, stunning stuff, really. I think. I good.
1: mean, it felt to me like looking at it, if you look at the actual still, you can see to me, look to me that Conte was properly flexing. You can see that you can see the stress on his forearm. So it felt like it was a classic six of one, half a dozen of the other situation where... Tufel didn't realise that if you put two your two fingers, your second finger and your third finger down the forearm of the other person, it is not possible for them to squeeze your hands. This is a trick that uh, every every playground child surely knows. But it was just that whole little section, the combination of the agitator that had been going all the way through the second half, was just everything that no one wants to see. I can't even believe we're talking about it now. It's was disgusting.
3: <laughs> it's, um, I was, that was one of Donald Trump's tricks as well, wasn't it? It was always the, like, pull the hand over and everybody was kind of trying to avoid being the one who did it. So there was a kind of a period of time where there was a lot of that being analysed and um, maybe not enough on the policies that he was affecting, but uh, that's, <laughs> that's a different story. Um, what's Tuchel doing here? What, what, what's he trying to establish? Why is he doing this?
1: Uh, I think... Um, What we don't always understand about elite sport is it's hard and because we kind of watch it and you think, well, I might have scored that or this is what I would do if I was managing. But what we can never understand is the pressure that these people are under or the kind of mentality it takes to cope with that pressure. So when it boils over like that, I mean, the only surprise to me is that it doesn't happen more often. I mean, if you think about, I mean, if I definitely think about the sport that I played in, and how agitated people got playing Sunday League football or Maccabi League Sunday football that I played in or university football, and how agitated people got. And these people are actually good. And their their livelihoods depend on it. Their reputations depend on it. So, of course, after a kind of game where they've almost had a ruckus after a goal, then you've had Tuchel sprinting down the touchline in front of Conte. Then you've had an injury time equaliser. I mean... The, one of the reasons the cameras are always on those handshakes is because they know that something might happen, and the only thing that's surprising is that, and also disappointing, is that it doesn't happen more often. How good a game was it? It was it was really good game. I mean, the, the quality wasn't that high, but it was it, it was intense, and that is really, I think, the main thing that you want in kind of any kind of sport. Really, is, is you is you want it to be you want it to be wild, you want it to be intense, and I think that. the the quality of the game itself Chelsea played really well in the first half but they were they were helped by the fact that Spurs were pretty supine and pretty reactive in the way that they went about it but then I mean, the thing that really seemed to make the difference for Tottenham was that just they brought on Richarlison, who didn't actually do that much beyond run about properly. And just in the very act of running about properly, he kind of inspired his teammates to do similar. And that really made a difference because ultimately with Tottenham, they don't, they lack, they lack a bit of presence in midfield when the way that Conte's playing at the moment. Uh, I know Pierre Milhoyberg scored, but. He's a bit slow. His passing's a bit negative. And when you only have... When you're playing a 3-4-3, so you only got two men in midfield, if those things are so of one of them, you're going to find it difficult to compete against the better teams. And what Chelsea did was they had two men in midfield because they're also playing a kind of 3-4-3, but they had Mason Mount and Kai Havert making extra numbers. And that made it really difficult for Tottenham to get the ball. But once Richarlison started pulling himself about and started hurrying the game up, it meant that there was more ball available for Tottenham's attackers, and Tottenham have attackers to cause any team aggravation.
3: One of the things that we've spoken about a good bit about Spurs is their strength and depth, and that's the whole point of them buying players like Richarlison, is that when, you know, in previous season they wouldn't have been able to influence this game, it would have been a relatively routine victory, and we would have said, Spurs still a little bit Spursy, but notwithstanding the fact that the issues that they still have to overcome with quality in, in central midfield, there is something different about this Conte team, and there is something different about not just them being able to change the course of the game, but sticking with it right to the 97th minute.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, Spurs under Pochettino also when got scored loads of eight goals. Um, so I think they do sort of, certainly like Harry Kane has been involved and, and Son have been involved in a lot in a, in a lot of those occasions. But I think that the thing that you say about uh, Holberg is the reason why it's strange is that they signed Bissouma because of because Hoiberg isn't that good, but so whilst you can say you understand what Conte is doing in that he's saying that you own a you, you earn a place in the team by performance, not by transfer fee, and that does make some sense. Yesterday they were absolutely crying out for Bissouma's dynamism, athleticism, his ability to carry the ball, his ability to use the ball. So. I think that it's true that Conte has changed the nature of Spurs in some ways, although I think the biggest aspect in which he's changed the nature of Tottenham is by making Daniel Levy back him in the transfer market, because I think what happened there was that Conte knew that he got Spurs into the top four, so he had quite a lot of power, because if Spurs are going to allow a manager who got them into the top four to leave because they're not willing to back him financially, and a manager of Conway's calibre... that sort of of starts to make the job almost toxic in that why would any manager worth their salt go and manage at Tottenham if that's what's going to happen to them? And actually, it's the kind of thing that, Man- which you mentioned United earlier that Eric Hag might think about doing because if he similarly, if he leaves United because the board won't back him, it always felt like this job in United, in the United sense was the kind of just the tipping point. If they won't back this guy, then why would anyone go there? And I felt like that that was sort of the same with Tottenham. So what Conte did was he knew that he was in a strong position and that in the end it probably was cheaper for Daniel Levy and Joe Lewis to pay some money for transfers than to face a potential decline. Because if you don't then back Conte, then you've got players like Harry Kane and Son saying, well, why am I, why am I staying? Why am I frittering the best years of my career here? And that to me is the thing that really changed Tottenham is they've gone from being a club that of kind of hopes to get into the top 4 into a club that has committed serious funds to being in the top 4 and that itself is a change of mentality of the owners which is a change of mentality that can filter down to the players that you now have a well supported team and that means that there are expectations and that ups the pressure on the players and Spurs have players who are good enough to be able to respond to that I think
3: what about Chelsea what what's the long term prognosis for for them and for the money that they've invested over the course of the summer and the, the squad debt that they have at the moment, um, uh, I, I think they could be title contenders if City were not City. <laughs>
1: yeah, if, if, yeah, I mean, in a, in a different world, for sure. If we were not... Comp- if, but I think the thing with Chelsea is that they have spent quite a lot of money this summer and they've still managed not to get themselves a centre forward. Now that's something that might change in the next few weeks. I think for Chelsea to actually challenge, it's something that absolutely needs to change. They should have won yesterday without having a proper goal scorer. Um, But what they need is someone who in those kind of games will just get them that extra goal that they, that, that they need because I mean, we're always kind of waiting for Kai Havertz to explode because he really—he's one of those footballers who really looks like a footballer. Like he's lean, he's tall. The way he moves with the ball is beautiful. He looks like someone who was born to play football. But it's a cup—it's it's a while now where we've been kind of waiting for him to become that definitive player that that Chelsea need, and he's not there yet. They played Raheem Sterling through the middle yesterday, who I don't think his finishing is quite good enough for that, um, although. He did make their second goal really nicely. Um, he's not—he's one of those players who scored a lot of goals, but who's finishing under pressure. You don't entirely trust. Also, with quick players, quick, skillful players like Sterling, I think they're better coming from out to in rather than just standing there in the middle. You want them to be difficult to pick up. So I think that Chelsea could finish. As in third place, I'd be surprised if they finished any higher than that. But it's hard to evaluate them now because if they're still trying to buy, like, apparently they're trying to buy Anthony Gordon, they're trying to buy Frankie de Jong they're trying to buy Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang so it's quite hard to assess them at this point but I thought that I was really impressed with how Tuchel got them playing yesterday because before the game I actually wondered if Spurs might be able to exploit them a little bit in the spaces behind the fullbacks backs um, because it felt like in Kudosevsky and Son they had exactly the players able to do that but the way Chelsea set up enabled them to maintain numerical advantage in midfield whilst also dominating in wide areas and I thought the way that Thomas Tuchel did that was really clever but I think that they're going to fall a bit short of winning the of winning the league. But they have a team that is good enough to be anyone on the, on its day. So in the cup competition, they're very live threat Indeed,
3: I wasn't sure what was going to happen with Tuchel after the Abramovich era finished. But it looks like maybe maybe we, we don't know what kind of long term owner to. Tub- Bowley's going to be but he certainly is very interested in the day-to-day running of the club and getting involved in transfers and doing deals and having fancy dinners with um, the other chief executives and owners so maybe that works out and, and they're best buddies may, I don't know but certainly Tuchel has emerged as somebody who seems to have a lot of power in a good situation they're talking about redoing the stadium you know he's a very young manager he's got an incredible CV now that he's won the Champions League it looks like he might be there for the long haul
1: yeah, it does. I mean, you're never quite sure because we don't, we haven't seen enough of what these owners are like yet or what their expectations are. But it may be that because Tad is obviously now director of football and you don't know to what extent he will enjoy his power in that role and how much that will conflict with Tuchel. If he's got any sense, they will give Tuchel the kind of control, uh, that Klopp has at Liverpool because Tuchel has earned that. He turned up to a team that was doing really badly, won Champions League with them the first season, and is looking to move them on now. And if Tuchel were to leave Chelsea and then apply for his own job, you'd get it. So they definitely need to help Tuchel fortify his position. But at this point, it's hard not to be suspicious of someone who's come knowing nothing about football and I and appointed himself and appointed... I'm not saying knowing nothing about football because I don't know exactly what he knows about football, but he's not an expert director of football. He's certainly not an experienced director of football. So to come in and appoint himself director of football probably tells us something about the way he conceives of himself. And that means that you would always be suspicious of how he might conceive of a manager when that manager has different opinions because obviously Burley is also an extremely rich person and extremely rich people often... Think that you can exchange the correct opinions for Ford money. And so I wouldn't be certain about what Bowley's going to do because we haven't seen him yet. But yeah, if he's got any sense, he'll pipe down and that will go on with it.
3: Um, how do you fix Manchester United?
1: <laughs> how long do you have? Um,
3: about two minutes.
1: <laughs> right. So the way that you fix Manchester United obviously is to change the owners, but it's not the only way of making United slightly better. The, the problem is that they've hung Eric Ten Hag out to dry. The, the players that he needs, he's not been given. We don't know what promises they made, but I'd be shocked if it would amount to Christian Eriksen, Lissandro Martinez and uh, Tyrell Molassia. I doubt very much that it was just, that was it. So, I mean, if I, I mean, what, what should really happen here is Ten Hag should do a Conte, And he should go and say, if you don't back me, I will leave. Because if United, if, if the Glazers don't back Ten Hag and he leaves then no players going to want to go to United, no manager worth the salt's going to go to United and the value of the investment is going to drop and that would allow 10 half. I mean, they might say, well, okay, leave then, but I, I, I'm not sure that they would because the, the amount of money it would cost them in lost prestige and therefore the ability to keep t- the coffers ticking over because of the players that you're still able to attract and, the ability to play in European football because of the managers. You're still getting all right managers. Good enough managers are able to bring European football. Good enough players are able to bring European football. But if Hag goes, then the pressure on United to appoint a different manager with the season still in progress, having been beaten like this twice would be, would be difficult. And I think that it is time for Hag to have a full and frank one with the Glazers. And that is the only way because United need players. It's not the only thing because obviously the players need to get better, but these players are experts in getting managers sacked and getting someone new in has clearly not had the effect that you wanted it to have. Now, you might be able to blame some of that on Ten Hag, but there's some of these players that were that were letting Van Gaal down, that let Mourinho down and let Ole down. So you can't just blame it all on Ten Hag and say, well, they're clearly not receptive to his ideas or his ideas aren't coming over properly. It's the... I mean, ultimately, I mean, I've talked probably for 90 seconds, those two minutes, to say that the whole thing stinks. The whole club stinks, the whole club's a mess, uh, and resolving it is not the job of one summer. And yet, you could do a really good job of making it much better in one summer by spending actual money on actually good football players. But the board don't want to do that because the Glazers are not interested in sport. They're interested in a trust fund, presumably... The way that online shopping has overtaken mall shopping is financially problematic for them because a lot of their money is tied up in malls, and so they just want United to be the thing that keeps paying for them, and that that's going to require some level of success from United. And it's for and actually, I think it's for Eric Ten Huff to play on that and inform them that if they do not give him what he needs, then he'll go and find himself a different job.
3: Uh, is is one of the immediate things they could do to change the goalkeeper, like? Not to be reactionary, but we have spoken, I'd say at length over the last couple of seasons about the evolution of football and how he is an old school goalkeeper, good shot stopper, occasionally a great shot stopper in patches, um, but not not really what you would pick if you were a, a Ten Hag or a Klopp or a Guardiola and you want to play that specific style of football that requires your goalkeeper to be good with the ball at his feet, 35 yards from goal.
1: I totally understand why Ten Hag would have looked at this squad and thought I'll sort the of goalkeeper next summer because he does probably didn't want Dean Henderson. He probably didn't want De Gea either. And De Gea, in um, a year, you can get rid of, De, let De Gea go and then spend the money elsewhere such that you don't actually need your goalkeeper as much as previously because you're trying to control the game, which means the ball's down the other end more. There's less pressure on defense and all the rest of it. The thing what you say about De Gea is that he doesn't, he can't play with the ball at his feet. The problem. With the chaires, not just that, it's that he, it's the errors. Like the one he tossed in the other day was on on Saturday was just absolutely ludicrous goalkeeping, and sort of spoke of someone who's not properly focused. And. 'Cause it's the kind of mistake that you very rarely see goalkeepers make. And it's not just the fact that he can't play with the ball at his feet, it's that he's a liability in terms of making mistakes. Even if we go back to the last year of Ole, the first year of Ole, sorry, De Gea made a mistake when United were winding up against Chelsea, I think it was, that basically had they won that game, they'd probably have gotten to the Champions League. And the mistake that De Gea made stopped that from happening. And he's been and that was not the fir- that was not the beginning of the decline. He'd been rubbish for a year before that. And he, for what, various reasons, the club, as I said, is such a mess that this has been allowed to proceed. And I think that it's not a matter of necessarily just of not be, not being able to play with his feet. It's also the fact that he doesn't dominate the box, which means that playing in front of him, I think, for the defenders is difficult because they're not sure when he's going to come They're not sure if he's going to come and get the ball. Or they think he's just rooted to his line, which means that they all have to drop and play much deeper than they'd like to. So the player, the problems with De Gea extend way beyond... Whether he's any use with his feet or not, and I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what the answer is because when I look at it, I guess my inclination is still to spend whatever money is available on outfield players and just hope the goalkeeper situation improves. And that's not because I have blind faith in De Gea. I no, absolutely don't. It's a bit. It's just. It is, yeah.
3: a, it is a bit chicken and egg though because you've got a five foot nine center back but if you had a six foot four goalkeeper who was commanding in his in his area coming to take the ball uh, in those set pieces then you could probably get away with your five foot nine center back and he could play further up the field and then suddenly your midfield is actually under less pressure and it's less easy to pick your defense apart because the team is playing collectively so i i, I like I see the point you're making he you probably analysed wow this is a much worse squad than I thought it was so I'm going I'm to fix the goalkeeper <laughs> problem next year because that guy uh, a Column, is in my ear pointing out that he's been player of the year four times Manchester United's player of the year four times and he was last year but that comes off the back of games where the team is getting battered he makes eight saves and uh, everyone's like wow what a great player you are because you've saved us and we've got the three points but they're not supposed to be making eight saves against inferior teams you're supposed to control the game
1: yeah, for sure. And part of the inability to control the game is, I agree, it's to do with how this De Gea being rooted to his line just means that spaces between the defence and the midfield are, are too big, and between him and the defenders are too big. And so, so I agree with that. So, but going out and finding a goalkeeper. So, what do you do? Do you go and think, well, I'll buy, I'll get a new goalkeeper for an amount of money for a little bit. Or are you trying to get a goalkeeper who you're going to have for the next five to ten years? And I think that's the problem here, is that they don't want to commit the money on a goalkeeper right now because so many other areas of the team need resolving. So you can look at it from the way that you just looked at it, and I 100% can see why you would do that. But you can also look at it and think, well, if you go and get Frankie de Jong, let's say a midfield player, that means you can control the game, then you also take pressure off the goalkeeper that way. So... The answer, obviously, is that you need both. You need both. <laughs> but in the same way that United needed Darwin Nunez and they needed Frankie Dion, and they ended up not bidding for Darwin Nunez because they were saving the money for Frankie Dion. And again, the answer was not one or the other, which was what was put to 10 off? we understand. It's that it was, it, you need both of those. And this is what it comes back to. Yeah. United's a mess. Like they've committed some money, but not enough money. And just to go back to Lissandro Martinez, because you mentioned him, I accept the fact that he's small. I don't accept the fact that he should be getting caught under the ball like he did the other day. And also, I think that we need to give him a little bit longer before we decide for sure that he's too small to play centre back in the Premier League because. There are many players who have not been good at the beginning. Who once they've settled have, have got a bit better. I kind of watching the game at the weekend. I once sort of wanted to have to keep him on. That the taking him off. I mean, I understand why he did it because you think, well, you don't want things to get worse for him because you're going to rely on him. Part of me also thought you the the, the you were told by the club to sign Paul Torres. I understand why anyone would reject him would reject advice that came from United, but he decided to sign Martinez. So this is your decision you've got to stand by and yeah. not, not yank him at half time that said I wouldn't be surprised if against Liverpool we see Martinez relocated to midfield
3: OK that'll be interesting to see if that hat does happen we've got a week to uh, build up to that Daniel good stuff we'll get you on again before that no doubt thanks a million right. see you
1: again everyone have a good day Bye.
3: it's uh, 14 minutes past 9 now we are heading back to Vicker Street in association with Cadbury FC a massive road show coming your way on the 17th of August Michael Owen Ian Wright Emma Byrne and Karen Kearney uh, the weather's miserable cheer yourself up by getting some tickets for this uh, otbsports.com forward slash events it's an exclusive off-air event and all our ticket proceeds will go towards supporting Irish women's grassroots football here's what's on OTB Sports Radio for you today at one o'clock OTB Gold is inside Park Harrington's gaff Splunk is live from three our classic game club is Man United versus Arsenal 2005 OTB Gold is Lance Armstrong and the show is live with Joe tonight from seven you can follow us across all our social channels and subscribe to our YouTube channel after the break we're back with Matt Williams on New Zealand's huge win against South Africa. But will it be enough to save the head coach's job? Back after these. OTB AM. A reminder, OTB AM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Let's turn to rugby. I'm delighted to say Matt Williams is with us. Matt, good morning to you. How are you getting on? Hey, Jay. Good morning, Matt. Very, very good. Thank you. The performance from New Zealand against South Africa is one of those performances that mm. may mean nothing in the long run. But for Ian Foster and that coaching ticket it's some vindication for everything that's happened, for the pressure that they were under for the, the team to produce against maybe the best team in the world in a, in a very difficult environment was a testimony really to them as as men and characters and all that kind of stuff. Like, will they ever get any credit for it? Do you think it was too little too late? Or is this a, a turning point?
7: That's a great question, Jer. Um let, let me just agree with you on all the things you surmised. Uh, winning at Ellis Park... Uh, is, is one of the hardest assignments in world rugby. It's at altitude. Uh, I think you could see that with, with, uh, the kicking, how far the ball travels. There's literally, there's just less oxygen. That's just a fact. And it, it, what it does, it makes it very hard on teams that aren't used to it. The South Africans are used to it. And obviously teams from Australia and New Zealand and Ireland where you're at, at sea level, it makes it unbelievably hard. I've been there four times and lost on all four occasions with with, uh, with the Waratahs and with emerging Wallabies. It's it's a really, really tough joint. Um, I, I actually text Andy Friend when Conant won there this year and just said oh, that's, gonna, that's one of Conant's great wins because it is such a hard place. And the other part about New Zealand, they played magnificent rugby their first try, Sam Cain's try. The, the build-up to it is as good as anything you'll ever see. Will they get credit in New Zealand? Look, the New Zealand media and the general rugby public have been Vile, and I, I use that word. Uh, I choose to use that word. They've been unfair and they've attacked the players and the staff personally. They've even, uh, you know, attacked the way they look, their physical appearance. I mean, it's been, it's just been horrific. It's nothing any um, sports person should have to endure because they haven't done anything wrong. They just lost games, right? So they haven't like acted in, in a, a, a manner that's brought, uh, 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 disrespect to the to the jersey. They've gone out and tried the hardest. Hasn't been good enough, right? So that's they've, they've lost five from six. But the way they've been uh, pillared and and humiliated in the New Zealand media and social media is something that all of us in rugby need to call out and say that's that's just not acceptable. And and, and former former New Zealand players, former All Blacks, are saying the same thing. I uh, and, and to get to your point, will it be enough? Ah, uh, back the, the most one of the best papers I've ever read on uh, coming out of rugby was a review of the New Zealand defeat in the quarter final of the 2007 World Cup when France beat New Zealand uh, in Cardiff and knocked them out, and everyone was calling for the sacking of uh, Graham Henry and Steve Hansen, who were the coaches then, the New Zealand Rugby Union did a thorough review. They didn't sack the coaches. They, they, The review was magnificently written, pointed out to failure in leadership in a lot of areas, including the New Zealand Rugby Union and the players. They kept the coaches and they won the next World Cup. There is a lot of pressure on the New Zealand Rugby Union to sack Ian Foster. Whether they will, traditionally, I would have said no, they won't, but I, there is a huge amount of pressure. I do very much feel for Ian Foster. I I really sympathise for him. What he's enduring is not what any coach should have to endure.
3: And irrespective maybe of what happens now, at least he has this moment where it's like, well, actually, you know what, that team, we didn't lose them. We didn't lose the dressing room. We absolutely were unified at the end. They were doing the things that we were trying to get them to do. Uh, so, because I, I, we were talking about this a little bit earlier on that the chief executive of the New Zealand Rugby Football Union had a press conference or a phone call where he was talking to the media and didn't say anything like kind of made the situation worse it all, basically into the vacuum everybody is now speculating one way or another so um, I, it, it, like from a rugby perspective do we see enough to say actually you know what there's been a, a sequence of reasons why the performances haven't been as good as the one at the weekend, but there's also reasons to think that they might be getting things right.
7: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that was a really, a really good game of rugby. Uh, New Zealand after the first try, which was an absolute cracker of a try and Sam Kane, their captain scored it, you know, and that's, that was really symbolic as well, because he's been getting horrible abuse and uh, uh, online and from the media. You could see the New Zealanders almost just the shoulders dropped and relaxed. They're playing without confidence, and that that they played. Then they, then they had to show character. They were behind, and they're playing the world champions at home. And the world champions, South Africa, played a played a highly successful negative game. They are such they they are just playing within the the awful laws of our game at the moment, and maximising the negativity. And New Zealand are playing positive. And I've got to give the Kiwis a lot of credit. They played really positive, ball in hand, running rugby. It was highly entertaining, and they won. They've, they've overcome massive adversity, and they've dug themselves out of a hole. And you, all the things you just said, you could see they were unified. So what are we saying here? New Zealand rugby is saying no one, once you pull on a black jersey, you're not allowed to lose any games. You're not allowed to have a bad run. And if you do, we'll sack you. I mean, it's just, you know, I know sport's all about performance and, and so on. But that, that is unru- there is an unreasonable um, position being taken by the media and, and the New Zealand rugby public. And the CEO and the NZRFU have, have really lacked leadership at the moment in supporting their team and their coach. Steve Hansen came out and criticised them massively uh, the other week, saying exactly that, that they, they are not supporting the team and not supporting their coach. And the CEO just did it again the other day. And I, I think that's really shameful. Of, of what they're doing, especially after such a gutsy, brilliant performance. Um, you know, I've been a, against the Kiwis my whole life, but, you, you know, you've got to be fair in this and just look and say, well, that, that really took some courage. and really took some kahunas. You stuck together, you played some great rugby, and you beat uh, the, the world champions at their home in one of the most difficult venues in the world by playing really positive rugby. They, if, if you're going to criticise them, you've got to give them, give them credit as well. So I don't know where they stand in, in the New Zealand Rugby Union. Let, let me put it this way from the, out, from the outside. The way the national team of New Zealand have conducted themselves and their coach, Ben Foster, has done nothing but, um, uh, but acted with pride and dignity. The way the New Zealand rugby public and the New Zealand media and the New Zealand Rugby Football Union have acted, I can't say the same. The New Zealand Rugby Union have not backed their team the way they should, especially after such a great win. So
0: so do you think that maybe some of their decisions to to speak publicly over the past couple of weeks has been a reaction to the public perception of of Ian Foster as in they're almost pandering to the media and to the public that, you know, we need to to get on board with this idea that Ian Foster is going to be out of the door soon. And they've just been caught unawares by a performance that was good on Saturday. And now they're ultimately caught between a rock and a hard place. Do we sack this guy or or, or do we not? And and it seems that they've just, uh, I guess, created a, a really terrible situation for themselves where they end up looking really, really poor
7: yeah on a real lack of leadership isn't it i mean the, your 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 ceo and your board uh, are leaders of the organization and they have to show leadership and right now they're not and it's exactly what you're saying they're facil- you know they they're being caught in the uh, the firestorm that is the media the rugby media in new zealand Instead of standing up to them, like the leadership did in 2007, you know they wanted to sack Richie McCaw in 2007. They wanted to sack Graham Henry and Steve Hansen. Both of those coaches who were with the team at that time then went on to win World Cups. Uh, Graham Henry won the one at home, and of course Steve, Steve Hansen won the next one in the UK. So uh, that leadership we saw from New Zealanders, and I said it's the most impressive document I've ever read in rugby. I have still have a copy of it back in Australia. That leadership that the NZ uh, RFU showed then, they're certainly not showing now. Uh, and here's the other thing: their team is. So there is a vacuum of leadership, and their team is stepping up, and their coach has stepped up, and they've done they've done very very well. Yeah, they did poorly in the past. They've acknowledged that. They haven't they haven't dodged it. They haven't tried to make excuses. And I think there were some. Uh, certainly in November last year, there were some reasonable excuses for why they weren't performing, which is they'd been living in hotels in a COVID bubble for almost four months in Australia and then in Europe. And anyone who's ever toured will tell you by the end of that period of time, you are absolutely mentally fried. And they didn't perform to their best. They didn't have any excuses, at home except they were beaten by a better team. Ireland were a better team. New Zealand with a better team in Auckland and I want a better team. Why not just admit that? Why not just say, gee, Ireland played well? We're not happy. Let's move forward. And look where they that they have performed uh, last week. So there's a there's a huge, huge problem in New Zealand rugby, not necessarily with their team, but certainly with other aspects of their leadership.
3: And it's going to be very interesting to see what the long term ramifications of the best South African club sides playing in Europe now and those players not playing week in, week out between now and the World Cup against South Africans, it might be very difficult for New Zealand into the future. But if this win is a harbinger of things to come, like they could still win this championship, for example.
7: Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Well, they, they, so there's, there's a trophy between South Africa and New Zealand and um, they won, New Zealand won that. So in the 2 test series away from home, New Zealand come home with a trophy. They won the championship last year. They're looking at Australia who are uh, decimated by injury at the moment and and you know a sort of a similar story played really well in Mendoza uh, ten days ago and were very poor uh, on last weekend last weekend against the Pumas the Pumas had a record win so they're looking at Australia and Australia haven't beaten New Zealand in a Bledisloe cup uh, I think since 2003 I think it was the last time Australia won it so you know the chances of Australia winning that are very very slim so they could win their series against. South Africa, they'll certainly beat Australia, uh, in my opinion, uh, and you would expect them to beat Argentina, which means they'll win the championship. So, again, this is panic, and you know, really poor. Let me come back to the media. The media is it, when you get when you're a coach, you get criticised. You expect getting to get criticised, and if you lose, you're going to get criticism. If you can't handle that, don't go into coaching. Ian Foster knows that he's been around a long time. But the viciousness and the vileness of what's been said about these players and coaching staff is just wrong. You know, their mental health, these are human beings. Their their parents, their their children, their 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 brothers and sisters, their wives, they have to listen to this. And it's really, look, it's horrible for people's mental health. We talk about the mental health and how important it is, yet we allow this to occur. And Artie Sevilla came out to his great credit and said just that uh, last week. said, this is just not right. They haven't stolen money. They're not selling secrets to the Russians. They're just playing a game of rugby, and they've lost a few in the last the last six. They've lost some games, and that that is the, that. What the great thing that team can take out of it? They've drawn a line of sand. They've closed the door and said, you know, I, I'll, I'll clean it up. But you know what they're saying is, that, well, forget them. It's all about us. And you know, more power to them. More power to them. They came out and stuck it right back to them, yeah. and uh, you got to you got to
3: admire that. It's very interesting to see what happens, and, and we'll, we'll know more during the week. There is supposed to be an, an update from the the New Zealand board. You know, I suspect Foster's going to survive now, but you don't know. It, it kind of sounded like maybe he was going to have enough and walk out head held high anyway. It, it's very difficult to know.
7: It, it is, true As I said, historically, I would have said he's definitely not going anywhere a year before the World Cup. Historically, I would have said that, especially after they changed their assistant coaches after the island... Uh, tour when they lost two uh, one, uh, and as I've spoken about the, the the historically how they've treated crisis in the New Zealand Rugby Union, but there is a definite lack of leadership and direction coming from the CEO, and so therefore that puts doubt in my mind about Ian Foster, uh, and I would there is huge pressure that um, Scotty Robinson from the Crusaders will step in. He is the heir apparent, whether it's now or after the next World Cup. I don't know. I truly don't know now. Uh, before, I would have said there was no way. Now, I'm not so sure.
3: Michael Checker was in two minds after his Puma team crushed Australia at the weekend. He said he was he was crying at one stage. Um, there was joy, and then there was tears afterwards, and he was a bit confused, but he came out afterwards and said, this is my crew now. I was up on the last try cheering, then I started crying because I know I probably... Uh, I probably shouldn't be doing this. It was a bit confusing for me personally, but they're my boys now. That's my team, which, you know, it was always going to be difficult for them the, the first time, but it's an incredible result. I didn't realise that Australia were missing so many players, so maybe not entirely unexpected that they would lose. But if uh, Argentina are going to start running in seven tries in games, then they're going to be good to watch.
7: They play great rugby. Um, you know, obviously, huge influence from Ireland there with Michael's days at Leinster and taking. Felipe Conopani with him there, um, Felipe running the attack, and they played some great rugby. Uh, and, and that's great for Argentina, it's great for the championship. Uh, the Wallabies are decimated. You know, no, I've got it written down here no Michael Hooper, no Quay Cooper, Fianga, their number one hooker, and Dave Parecchi, their number two, or vice versa. Dave has started recently. They're out, so they're down to hooker three and four. Hunter Pasami and Alan Alatoa, the loose head prop. So they're There's seven players down, and there's probably one or two others you could throw in there. That is no excuse for the defensive effort that they put in. They missed so many tackles and were really quite poor um, right across the park. And, you know, 48-17, seven tries, the biggest loss of all time to the Argentinians, and that means for the last eight games for the Wallabies, they've only won two. So uh, it's, it's tough times for the guys in the gold jersey for sure. Um, but, you know, Michael's a great coach. I texted him a couple of times a few few uh, months ago and he, he's really committed to that. He's developed a very good coaching staff and Michael's um, history um, is the same as mine. He's brought up in the running game, that's the way he was brought up at the Ramwick Club, then the Waratahs and the way he plays and coaches his ball in hand and he knows Felipe has the same philosophy. He brings in people on that on the, on the same thinking and they produced a great win and th- that's great for world rugby and very good for the championship Argentina at home are going to be tough for everyone there's, there's no two ways about that
3: it's box office for sure great to have you with us Matt thanks a million
7: pleasure guys great to talk to you
3: it's Matt Williams There, giving us some thoughts on the coaching situation um, I'd be surprised if he leaves now having won that that's a, like this is my job thanks very much and the competition is back open the tournament is on they can win the trophy and then it's like, oh, forged in the fire of a bad six months. But that's all it was, six months. We got over it.
0: Mm. That would definitely be kind of an optimistic outlook on it all. It does feel like even listening to Matt there kind of confirms the belief that there have been some bridges burnt.
3: Or at least they're, 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 they're smoking up right now. And the, Well, look, maybe I was going to say, if you're Scott Robinson, do you want to come in now? Maybe because you've just seen the performance at the weekend. You're like, yeah, I do want to absolutely take this team now because we're going to like, we're reborn. Like you can't, I, I can't imagine there's
0: ever a time when the collection of players that are available to the All Blacks are that uh, bad. No, like um, of course it could be historically bad, and they could still be easily a top team five team the in the world. The world. Yeah. And
3: right. I know they've gone up to number four. I think uh, after the weekend. So all right, there you go, back in the top four, nine thirty four, which means they're a semi-final team. Mm-hmm. That's our dream, nine thirty four this morning. We're brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. We're back tomorrow from half seven with Niall O'Toole talking about Paula Donovan and Fintan McCarthy's win at the European Championships. We'll have Liverpool broadcaster Garth Roberts reacting to tonight's game against Palace at Anfield and plenty more besides. I think we're going to start our build-up to uh, Liverpool Man United now. OTB AM With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with Exfoliating Bar.